The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 377. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hey, Noah, good morning to you. Good afternoon to you. Well, it actually is afternoon. It's a special Friday edition of the Linux Action Show, episode 377. We're going to talk about the show itself here in a little bit. But first, let me tell you about what's coming up in this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. Linux networking and its basics. Sometimes they are a little confusing, a little obtuse. We're going to explain the basics of home networking and using them under Linux. We're going to give you a few resources to check out. And we're going to walk down not only our previous experience, but also some of the basics you need to make your home networking work great. Have you ever been in your file manager and tried to browse the network and just had that completely fail on you or tried to discover all the other machines on your network in a remote desktop application and couldn't find anything? We'll fix all of that after today's episode and give you some great resources to look up, look up on your own. And then, in the news segment, there is a major Firefox exploit that's actually specifically targeting Linux users. We'll tell you about that and the patch you can get. LibreOffice just had a new release, and some of the back-end stuff that they worked on is crazy cool. You had no idea that a new Office version could actually be so exciting. We'll break it down for you. And then also, how about, about some of the interesting improvements they're making for Wayland in the future. Yalda Tablet has an update. We'll tell you about that. And then last but not least, there's a petition to try to convince the White House to use open source whenever possible. But it looks like it might be a bomb. And then in the feedback segment, we've got some great emails. And we're going to talk about the show itself. We'll get a little meta with you. But before all of that, Noah, guess what? The picks. It's the picks. I love this pick. It's our Runs Linux pick. And it was sent in uh, by viewer Robin. It's the school bell in the UK that runs Linux. Noah, this is cool. Do you want to read the feedback here from uh, from Robin? And I'll pull up the pictures to talk about this cool yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, what he did was <clears throat> we've all been in in elementary school where they have the bell that mar- that uh, that marks the end of a of a period. Um, and so and so he goes and so he writes in and he says, "I wanted to share my own small runs Linux." He calls it small, but I don't think it's small. Uh, my it's own pretty small cool. runs. Well, if you're doing it in a, in, in it, 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 it is dictating to hundreds, if not thousands of children, when to stop one thing and start the other. That's big. Uh, he goes, I want to share my own small runs Linux with you. I'm in an IT working in secondary school in the UK. I got fed up with our old, outdated lesson change bell from the 70s. So I made a Pi-powered one. It uses Love Cron it. and a Python script to that turns on a relay to, for a set amount of time. The Cron uh, is edited via the UI that runs on PHP, MySQL, on top of Apache. Photos in the UI and the photo build are attached in production and built since February and still going strong. That is a cool project. He built a, um, it looks almost like a telco box that you would see on the side of a building. Yep. It's a plastic enclosure mounted on the side of the wall, He's put, but he put a Raspberry Pi logo on the outside and he cut out an LCD screen so you could see the LCD readout that he attached to it. And here's a screenshot of the UI. Uh, it's nice. So it's got a whole PHP front end to set cron, which makes cron much more manageable, probably for average users. This is really slick, Noah. Very. This is when we say send in your runs Linux. This is such a cool example mm-hmm. of that. So thank you very much, Robin. Uh, Robin T in the UK. 
And uh, <laughs> I like these. Like our bell system was from the seventies. It was time for a change. And then this is where he went. That's just brilliant. That's because you know I think a lot of people will be like, well, let's go look up the big commercial package and see what we can get. And then I'll oh, oh look, only twenty two hundred dollars for the system control, and only three hundred and sixty one dollars and fifty nine cents per bell. And they're neck workable, no. so you'll be able to place them anywhere in the school. So for only fifteen thousand dollars, we could retrofit the school, or you could do it for twenty dollars. And then don't and then don't forget about that subscription fee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, because you know what? Here's what will happen. You won't be able to change the time of the bell unless you can log into the web portal, which right. will require yeah. a $2,000 per year uh, maintenance fee or whatever. You, you know, you kind of joke. But I'm not joking. You know what? This is my favorite for, for, for the rest of the year. And then I promise after the new year, uh, my New Year's resolution will be I won't use this anecdote anymore. But uh, I just it just it boggles my mind. One of the largest credit card breaches we had in the history of the United States was when Target was compromised. And what, what, what Target's downfall was is they outsourced the management of their HVAC system, of the <laughs> cooling, of the Target store, so that way it was comfortable for shoppers. They outsourced the management of that. And the vendor that managed the HVAC systems for all the different Target stores used a VPN that was in the, connected inside the Target land. And so all the malware author had to do was compromise that one vendor, and then he had backdoor access to all of the target machines, which then once you get on the LAN, those, those, those point-of-sale machines were all running Windows XP, and they put malware that just read the car- credit cards right out of the RAM no. of the point-of-sales machine. On XP? Yeah. Yeah. That, ho- that, that, that remarkably secure operating system? How could somebody <laughs> be penetrate that? Right, right. So uh, these, these large managed solutions are real, and they, what they end up doing is they end up locking you into a system that eventually becomes your, your weakest link. And so I think traditional, um, traditional thought would be, well, don't build your own system. Don't, don't create your own empire of technology because then you just have to manage it. But uh, what Robin is showing us here is for an unbelievable economical price, you can retrofit something from the 70s and make it extremely modern without this vendor lock-in, without locking you into some sort of management contract or anything like that. And, you know, that was actually, you know, what started to get me into Linux in some of the places I worked at was it was the same kind of thing. I could slip it in right mm-hmm. here and just completely solve this problem. And it, it was solved it so perfectly, you almost wouldn't even know we'd used Linux because it didn't cost anything. There was no contract. There was no big meetings it had to have, had to go down to make it all happen. It just worked. And that's pretty cool to still see that happening. You know, the, the truth is, you and I both, uh, we shoehorn Linux into to pretty much everything, partly probably just because we want to see if it'll work. But the reality is, stuff like this is where Linux shines far and above other operating systems. I'd be the first one to admit that Linux on the desktop uh, has some compromises that have to be made. Uh, overall, I think they're worth it. Uh, having a having a big picture and and knowing and understanding the whole landscape of technology, I'm still okay. I'm still comfortable telling people that's the best that's that's the best course of action. But I admit that there are some yeah. compromises. I would submit to you that with respect, there are no compromises to be made when you're using embedded type devices. That is where there is right. no better yeah. solution. Full stop. Save none. No exceptions. Yeah. Very well put. No, you know where else? Uh, Linux freaking rocks. You guys know that. That's the cloud. Go to digitalocean.com. That's the sponsor of the Linux Action Show. And use our promo code of absolute power, knowledge, and maybe even enlightenment. It's last digital, L-A-S digital, all one word. DigitalOcean is so cool. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own Linux machine up in the cloud. Now, 
I say Linux machine knowing that they do have free BSD systems, but they have Ubuntu, they have Fedora, they have CoreOS, they have Debian, they have CentOS. They really are a premier Linux platform. And like with CoreOS, for example, they work upstream with the CoreOS project to get updates directly from them, which is just super, super cool. When they work on code, they make it publicly available up on GitHub. DigitalOcean is slick. And what's really nice about DigitalOcean is they can get you started fast. Less than 55 seconds, you're going to have your own machine spun up. But here's what's really awesome. The value, only $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabytes of SSD because they're all SSD, one CPU and a terabyte of transfer. All of this powered by Linux using the KVM virtualizer, all backed by SSDs, gigabit connections. Woo, boop, 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 that, so that terabyte flies. They have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London, and they got a brand new one in Germany. They really are all in on Docker too. So if you would like to build something locally, test it, create it, and then when you're ready to put it up on a public machine to either get some nice performance or some testing or really to scale, you can publish it right up to a DigitalOcean droplet in no time. And then there's that interface that DigitalOcean has. It is so simple and intuitive, and you can replicate it on a larger scale with their straightforward API. You can deploy applications with a single-click DNS management. You can really go in there and adjust every single thing you might need to your virtual machine, like perhaps you need a new public IP address. Maybe you want to expand the hard drive. Maybe you want to shut it down and move it to a different region. Maybe you want to destroy it. Maybe you want to make a snapshot to base another system off of it. It's really cool. And there's a bunch of good community applications around that. And then to top all of that off, DigitalOcean has really, really good documentation and tutorials. Like I just looked at this one they post recently, uh, Building for Production Web Application Backups. Backing up your web apps, you know, something you're working on, extremely, extremely important. And also, a unique opportunity of DigitalOcean here is they have private networking. And so you could have a front-end server and have a back-end server connected over private networking to your front-end server. That means nobody can get to it from the public web. And also, the transfer between your public server and your private server is totally free. Because that's over DigitalOcean's land. Private networking transfers aren't charged. So you have essentially unlimited, which is really great for backups or to have some backend resources. This is an extremely interesting way to utilize DigitalOcean. You've heard us talk about like they're X, using X to go to have a virtual workstation up on DigitalOcean. Well, now imagine putting like OpenFiler on a droplet using private networking. Maybe you have a couple of X to go workstations, $5 a month up on DigitalOcean, all with the same private network connected back to the same OpenFiler machine. You could start to build a mini LAN up in the cloud that you could connect to using X2Go anywhere you go. And you could try it out two months for free when you use our promo code LASTDIGITAL. It's pretty cool. There's a lot you can do with DigitalOcean. I mean, we just scratched the surface. So go over to DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code LASTDIGITAL. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. You guys rock! Okay, Noah. We got a desktop app pick. We got a double, double, double spotlight because... You know, actually, I'm not even kidding. We, had, we ended up with extra time on our hands this week, even though we're recording the show early on Friday because uh, I wasn't so worried about the video production. So I had time. I got, I got, I got double picks. We got like an extra batch of feedback. It's, we got a lot of stuff. I'm really excited about today's episode. So let's start with our app pick. This is Zoiper, Noah. Zo- Do you think I'm saying yeah, that right? Zoiper. And so actually, oddly enough, I can't take credit for it. It's actually somebody in the audience that sent it in. However, they did it in the chat room while we were reviewing SIP, and you had installed it. And the only thing I really noticed about it was, hmm, I like that UI. And that, that was it. Mm. And then later I got home and I installed it. And I tell you what, Chris, I went, I kind of went, I kind of went fanboy on it. I installed it on my laptop and it works so well. And you can buy 
a subscription service and or I'm sorry, a a professional license for it, which enables all of the professional PBX functions so I can do call transfers and holding and all that stuff. And the great thing about it is the way they have their installer, it is a dot bin installer. So I can install. I have one installer that has worked on Arch. It's worked on Fedora. It's worked on Ubuntu. Mm. Like it seems it, it is basically as That's close nice as I've for ever deployments. seen. Yeah, it's great. And they have it for Android. They have it for Windows. They have like every single platform. I have one program to use and I have access to my phones. And the other thing is I can add multiple accounts. So I have I have access to my clients phones. I have access to our phones. I have access to my home phones. Um, if if I ever get around to actually uh, shipping you those packages, I'll have access to JB JB's phones. But all of these are available in this one client. Uh, and it's an amazing SIP client. It's totally reliable, totally uh, – I mean everything that you'd want to see in good software exists in this piece of software. It looks like also under Windows it integrates with Outlook and uh, it also has support for LDAP, XMPP, uh, XCAP, and there's Android and iOS apps available for it as well. And it says that also it'll look up incoming calls oh, online so you know who it is. Like It has a, like a pretty advanced caller ID functionality oh, too, yeah. which other SIP clients don't have built in. Yeah. So this is pretty nice. I can do the call queue. So like, let's say I can access the call queue from free PBX. So like, let's say we wanted to start doing call-ins on the Linux action show. I could have it set up so that the call comes in and we just hit create call or take call queue and it pulls the next person from the queue in, brings yes. them on air. We talk to him, we hit next. Can we do that? Yeah, we could totally do that. Let's do that. So here I could be, I did actually install it. Like you mentioned during our, our SIP episode. Uh-huh. And uh, so I have it right here. The UI is kind of, it's, it's, it's very custom, but it doesn't look bad. I mean, it, it it's not native. But at the same time, it's pretty nice. Uh, it's quick, too. It launched right away. Uh, and, uh, what do you mean by it's yeah, not native? Well, like, it's a custom skin. Like, it doesn't oh, look like a GTK or right, a QT application, right. but that doesn't matter. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, so if I upgrade, if I upgrade, I get improved quality because it, acts, it, uh, it activates G729 and H264. And I also get call transfer, call recording. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah, it really is. LDAP integration turn, gets turned on. Outlook on Windows gets turned on. Okay. Okay. Yeah, not bad. So that's actually, geez, Noah, this is this is you know, if I was if I was in a in a, in a corporate environment and I was using Linux and we had a SIP system, this would definitely be the client that would, I would want to use. And if I like that the bin aspect means it'd be make it it make it really simple to make it part of just a standard build. Very cool. Yeah, I it's it is hands down the best SIP client I've used thus far. And if I if I had known about it and had played with it prior to us doing our episode, I would have probably spent the entire episode talking about how much I like Zoiper and less about actual SIP. Z-O-I-P-E-R.com, and we will also have a link to that in the show notes. Something we've talked about before, but we want to make a spotlight of it. It's never been in the spotlight, and I think sometimes you guys think we don't know about it. And so we're going to talk about it this week. It's C-File. Now, uh, I, I, you know, I, you hear me talk about Dropbox, BitTorrent, Sync. Is this sort of the same thing, Noah, C-File? So a couple of things stood out to me right off the bat with C-File. I was playing with it this week. As you know, I'm constantly looking for, I think you are too, looking for a replacement for Dropbox, and I don't think either of us have really found it. The first thing that stood out to me is there actually is a server component. Now, that's one of the things I really liked about OwnCloud was that I didn't have to worry about, I don't think in terms of my desktop being a server, I think of it being a client. So I don't really think about when I leave town, is it on or off? I don't really care. It's whatever the last state was. If something happened to get unplugged or it happened to turn off, I wouldn't think to turn it back on. And I found when I was using some of the like the peer syncing solutions um, that my desktop was the most, quote unquote, reliable to get to because I'm swapping laptops out all the time. And then if yeah. I forget to turn it on, then I was kind of hosed. So this, I can have a digital <laughs> droplet that has all of my yeah. stuff up in the cloud. 
So let me pause you right here. So uh, C-File allows you to have your own, what they call your own personal server using their community edition, free and open source. You just download it. And then the other thing, Noah, that's kind of nice about C-File is they also have like ccloud.cc and cloud.cfile.de, which are hosted versions of C-File. And you could use their public cloud, which they promise to make secure. You know, one of them is hosted in .de. They, they claim it's, you know, all this and that. So you have the option of either rolling it your own and putting up on a droplet or your own rig, or you can use their system and pay them. And they also have a pro edition, uh, which has like a 12-month uh, subscription service, and it's based on users. And so then when you get that, you get like a whole bunch of other support and things like that. So you could have like, you could have, an, you could have your own small group uh, Dropbox solution here, either self-hosted or using their pro system. And then you can also even get support. So, it, you know, it's not just like roll your own. They also offer a whole commercial side as well. I don't, did you get a chance to see any of that? I, I didn't. And I mean, the reality is uh, not that I trust their, not that I would go out as far as to say that I trust uh, their hosting, uh, the security of their hosting. But I will say this. I don't trust it any less than I would trust Dropbox or Google Drive. Yeah. So uh, if, that's, if, that's, if, that, if that's a workable solution that gives me the reliability so that I can build some trust in the, in the software itself, and then if I want to move it to my own uh, infrastructure, because let's face it, neither you and I can say with definitive. I mean, we both have a pretty good idea, but neither one of us can say with definitive certainty that our problems with own cloud are purely own clouds fault and not something that we as administrators are doing wrong. I mean, we don't really know. I mean, we can both take a good educated, a very highly educated guess. But at the end of the day, since neither one of us have actually worked on the code of it, we don't know for sure. So then the thing that appealed to me about this is I can use their hosted solution to gain confidence in the software. And then if I move it to my own hmm. and it doesn't work, I can say, well, maybe it's something I'm doing wrong. Let me look into that. But right now I've hit the same wall you have, which is just that I don't trust OwnCloud with my data. I can't because it bites me more than once on serious things in big ways. Yeah, so C-File could be an alternative. Also, don't forget about SyncThing, another thing to look at that we're going to take a look at here in a future edition of Linux Action Show. SyncThing has gotten some big updates recently. Does it allow you to have a server component yet? That was my big turnoff last time. Well, I think we could... See, I think when we look at it, we could roll our own server component, essentially. Oh, okay. I think there's a way to do that. Okay. We just... Yeah, and so... Because, you know, we're not... we're we're it, Basically, the way we're recording this show, uh, we're going to need to start exchanging large files on a regular basis. It might make sense to look into this. And so I wanted to talk to you about it, maybe, and we might make an episode out of it down the mm-hmm. road. But yeah, that'd be a component we'd have to have, is a central sync server that all the files could bounce off of. I agree. All right, so we have a bonus spotlight item, and we also have... Uh, uh, something else to mention. Our friends, uh, and also known as frenemies, I mean good friends, I mean good enemies, over at uh, Linux. Uh, oh, wait, wait, no, 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 not Linux. I'm sorry. Hold on, Noah. I'm getting a uh, update right here. Welcome to BSD Unplugged, your weekly BSD talk show that's too busy getting actual work done to care about your silly display server. Oh. My name is Alan. That's right. It's our friends over at BSD now. Uh, they actually just hit their two-year anniversary and uh, just uh, just tipped over the episode 100 mark as well. And in celebration of episode 105, they have launched the BSD Now shirt. And no, I'm a little jealous. Their shirt's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good, Noah. Do you see this? Yeah, there are some problems with it, I see. They have the usual, the usual BSDs on here. And uh, they have uh, the, uh, the, uh, the BSD logo with a Z, with a Z on his chest and a, for ZFS and a hard drive. And they got the Blowfish logo and they got NetBSD on there because NetBSD runs on a toaster. Mm-hmm. And then they have BSDNow.tv on the back. So you can go get it, teespring.com slash BSD105. Uh, they've got also a uh, ladies fitted tee as well. 
And uh, just two colors, 24 days left, three more needed uh, in the reserve before they unlock it. Teespring.com slash BSD 105. And congratulations to the BSD guys. They only have 300 and... I'm sorry. No, I shouldn't even... I won't even tease. Uh, go over to teespring.com slash BSD105. It is actually really awesome. So, yeah, it's a very them. nice It's a very nice shirt. It is missing some critical components. Um, What's that? What's that? it would be nice if there was a penguin on that shirt. I think that would yeah, really I bring th- out some character in the shirt. And I feel like to to properly represent uh, how you use BSD, you should at least have the Linux virtualization layer on there. Because let's be honest, <laughs> if you're really going <laughs> to... Have VirtualBox, the VirtualBox logo on there for, for, for running... <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. No, it's great. It's actually really cool for them. Uh, okay, so uh, now I, we do have a bonus spotlight option, or I'm sorry, item, because uh, this just came out today as we're recording. Privacy Badger 1.0 from the EFF. Do you know about Privacy Badger, Noah? I was looking at it just now. So Privacy Badger is uh, like an extension. I installed it a little bit ago. I have it right now on my machine. And uh, it's so supposed to use uh, an algor- algorithm to figure out tracking. And it's supposed to allow a little bit of tracking to make the website work but not enough tracking that you get tracked like a like a mo, and at the same time it gives you ratings and uh, it like uh, it gives you different like uh, how bad they're tracking you ratings in in the drop down, and you can report sites, you can report when websites break. It's actually pretty neat. Uh, I've installed it uh, earlier today just to play with it a little bit. And here's what they wrote: They say online tracking has become a pervasive, invisible reality of the modern web. Most sites you load are likely to be full of ads, tracking pixels, social media share buttons, and other invisible trackers, all harvesting data about your web browsing. These trackers use cookies and other methods to read unique IDs associated with your browser, the result being that they record all the sites you visit uh, as you browse around the Internet. This sort of tracking is invisible to most web users, meaning they never get the option to agree or opt out of it. Today, the EFF has launched the 1.0 version of Privacy Badger, an extension designed to prevent those trackers from accessing unique info about you and your browsing. And they have, they have plugins available for Chrome and Firefox. Uh, yeah, and also, but one more thing. It works in tandem with the new Do Not Distract policy announced earlier this week by the EFF, Disconnect Medium, uh, Mixpixel, Adblock, and DuckDuckGo, which I was going to cover earlier, but this kind of covers this. So some, so some sites can also use that. It'll work with that. And uh, I don't know. I think it's kind of a neat thing. I, I'm kind of I'm glad to see the EFF behind something like this. What are your thoughts? Noah? I think it's really cool, and I'm glad the project exists. And I'm sure for the people that really care about their privacy, um, this is going to be an excellent tool for them. However, for me to for me to be worried about stuff like this, and at the same time wear Google Glass and carry an Android phone, it's like lighting a bonfire in my living room and then asking my wife to be very careful with her fire extinguisher in the kitchen while she's cooking. I, it just I think that I am so far removed from, uh, I guess, paying good attention to my own privacy that I, I can't I can't in good conscience. Really? I mean, really? Let me turn it around. Maybe you're thinking about this the wrong way. Think about it in this respect. Uh, do you want one website to know that you went to Pornhub or some other website? Like, are, are you comfortable with websites sort of collecting collaboratively together to see all the websites you go together? I guess no, but at the same time, is Google is Google as a company not already doing that? I mean, the, most of the websites I go to, I get there by by way of Googling their website to begin with. So is this really going to stop them from? I mean, you you see what I'm saying? I I just I feel like I'm I feel like I'm I'm worried about I'm worried about one small little thing because the the reality is all these companies being able to cumulatively track me. Uh, that seems like a very small threat in comparison to a single company with a ton more information. So I have a hard time really. 
I look at it as a multi-layered approach. Like, uh, you know, I can be more cautious about what inputs I give to Google, and I can also be more cautious about what inputs I give to dozens of ad tracking networks. And this kind of helps me do that because this also helps. Uh, this also helps uh, with some Google Analytics stuff. So I don't know. I I I don't think they're mutually exclusive. To be honest with you, I think it's you have to kind of just use the tools available to you, and and the less signals you give them, the better. Is more what not not. It's not a one or it's not a, a one or a zero. Not a binary thing. Yeah. But it's more of a gradient. I I I choose to try to generate less signals. I can't not generate any signals, but I try. I I attempt to generate less. And that's what this helps that's me do. That's a pretty legitimate way to looking at. It. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, I feel. I guess I'd feel silly sitting inside of a room telling somebody that this is a great tool while I'm wearing Google Glass, typing thing, googling things on my Android phone. It. Just, I just feels. I don't know. It just feels. No, I. I. I respect the fact that you are aware of that at least. <laughs> so there is at least that. Uh, and you know what? It's. It's. I'm going to use it for a little while, and I'll just kind of. I'll report back. I, earlier today, I couldn't get Google Plus to load for me, and I wasn't sure if it was because Privacy Badger was on. So I disabled it, and I still couldn't get Google Plus to load for me. So it wasn't that. But I'm going to keep using it for a few days, because once you install it on one Chrome instance, it goes on all your Chrome instances. So I've got it on all the machines now. And I've disabled Ad- Adblock Plus or whatever it was in the meantime, and I'm just using this in its place. And uh, we'll see how it goes. All right, Noah, let's do the news. Hey, it's the news, and this episode is brought to you by... Ting.com. Go to last.ting.com. Ting is mobile that makes sense, but I don't need to tell you that because Kyra can. Ting keeps rates simple. We don't make you pick a plan. Instead, you just use your phone as you normally would. How much you use determines how much you pay each month. You can have as many devices as you want on one account. That's good because when you use more, you pay less per minute, message, or megabyte of data. Your usage plus $6 per active device on your account plus taxes is your monthly bill. It's kind of crazy. That's what we mean when we say mobile. That makes sense. Wrap your head around that. $6 a month, and then it's just your usage after that. And uh, I, I tell you, that's how I'm able to have a few lines right now, and it's, like, unbelievably low. And the value is incredible with Ting. If you go to last.ting.com, they'll take $25 off your first device if you have a Ting-compatible device, and you might because they have a GSM network and a CDMA network. And so you just have to have a phone that's compatible with one of those and then you can get a $25 credit. Well, when I brought over, uh, now this is a little while ago. This, this tells you how long ago I became a Ting customer. I brought over an Evo uh, 4G um, that had um, um, WiMAX. It had WiMAX. That's what I brought over to Ting when I switched to Ting. And I got a $25 credit. And then that paid for more than my first month of Ting. Now I've got, you know, the uh, Samsung S6 on, on Ting and the iPhone 6. Um, and, and I was actually, uh, thankfully, you know, I, I I was actually one of the lucky folks who was able to get on the GSM just a little bit early. So uh, I, I've been rocking the Ting GSM network since a little bit before the general public. And I'm getting like 20, 21, 25 megabits here at the studio. And what's great about Ting is they don't really mind if you just want to use them as a wireless ISP. You just check the box. And then boom, now you've got a Wi-Fi hotspot. You don't have to be like in some sort of share plan or anything like that. And remember, there's no contract. So there's no early termination fee. The devices are unlocked. You own them. A lot of other people are trying to like kind of copy some of these ideas now, but nobody has the whole package. And then Ting wraps it all up with their incredible dashboard. It is so slick. And their apps for iOS and Android. Okay, that's pretty neat, right? And then they have no hold customer service. You can call them at 1-855-TING-FTW and a real human being answers the phone. 
it's pretty pretty awesome. Also, they're really good about being transparent. They're really good about keeping you up to date, and and, and they understand that their community is really uh, full of a lot of savvy users, a lot savvier than your average telco. So they understand that and they respect that. And if you go to the Ting blog, you that comes through. They're constantly talking about ways you can save money. And this week, they've talked about playing it safe. They have an account security update posted on their blog. You can go to ting.com slash blog, but go to last.ting.com, last.ting.com to support this show. As a precautionary measure, Ting is uh, resetting everyone's Ting account passwords. They say that uh, some uh, hoodlinks, I love Ting, you know, they're so Canadian about this. They say that some hoodlinks tried to get into Ting and they have no evidence any accounts were accessed or sensitive details were lifted. And believe us, they have taken a look, they say. But as you can imagine... Their security engineers are working overtime to get to the bottom of everything. So out of abundance of caution, Ting is resetting passwords, even though they don't think anything's really been exposed, anything like that. But why not just have good password hygiene anyways? You know, we follow a lot of these kinds of things on the TechSnap program. And so many times companies blow this. They really blow this. You know, they have pride about it that, and they have egos about how they talk about it. And they really just mess the whole thing up. Ting went to their blog, they wrote something in plain English that everybody can understand, everybody can connect and relate with, and they're using an abundance of caution too at the same time. I really respect that. I want you to go to last.ting.com and go to their blog and ask yourself, would your wireless provider handle this like this? Last.ting.com, go check them out. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action Show, last.ting.com. That's how you can keep us on the air, by visiting our sponsor, last.ting.com. All right, Ting, thank you very much for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. Hey, Noah. Hey, Chris. You ready to talk about a major security flaw that's affecting your favorite browser? That is Firefox. Heck yeah. And actually, this one's kind of nice, man. It targets uh, Linux users uh, rather specifically. I, I feel I felt kind of like, oh, that, that's nice. I so think that's uh, yesterday terrific. morning, you're, well, and you know what? It kind of makes you feel like on the same plane. Like, hey, Windows 10's <laughs> out, but doesn't matter. Linux, Linux is getting this we too. We can get this, uh, this too. Is, Came at like August 5th, a couple days ago, a Firefox user informed uh, Mozilla that an advertisement on a news site in Russia was serving Firefox exploits, searched for sensitive files, and uploaded them to a server that appears to be in Ukraine. I love it. I love it. You know, it's like a, it's, there's an entire conspiracy angle to this here, maybe. The mor- uh, this morning, uh, today, Mozilla released security updates that fixed the vulnerability. All Firefox users are up- encouraged to upgrade to version 39.0.3. Now, here's what's slick. The files that it's looking for are, like, specific to Linux. And I'm going to get to this in a second. But first, I'll tell you about the vulnerability. The vulnerability comes from the interaction of a mechanism that enforces JavaScript context separation. So it's actually supposed to protect you. Uh, and Firefox is a PDF viewer. Mozilla products that don't contain the PDF viewer don't even have the vulnerability. So, like, Firefox and Android isn't affected, and maybe your distro, depending. Here's the, what the vulnerability was doing. Once they got the exploit on there, it was looking for files... Surprisingly developer-focused, as Mozilla puts it. An exploit launched on a general audience news site, though, of course, they don't know where else the malicious ad might have been deployed, but on Windows, the exploit looked for subversion files, and the S3 browser, and FileZilla configuration files, also .purple files and .psi plus account information, and site configuration files from eight different popular FTP clients. Okay? Now, on Linux... The exploit goes after the usual global configuration files, like Etsy password, and then all the user directories it can access, it looks for .bash history files, .mysql history files, .postgres history files, and of course, .ssh configuration files and keys 
configuration files for Aminia, which is the remote desktop application, FileZilla, and of course PSI Plus, and text files with pass and access in the names, and any shell scripts. The exploit leaves no trace that it's been run on the local machine. If you use Firefox on Windows or Linux, this is from the Mozilla blog, they say it would be prudent to change any passwords and any keys found in the above-mentioned files if you use the associated programs. So if you use Firefox and MySQL, Postgres, Bash, SSH, or PSI+, Mozilla recommends you change your passwords. Well, nobody on Linux uses any of those, so I guess we're good. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's, a heck of a, that's a heck of a bit of malware, isn't it? That's not good, and it's, it's, it's even more depressing that it's coming out of Firefox. I don't yeah. know how I feel about that. And, you know, it's so interesting is that this isn't the, this isn't the only story this week. I covered a story on Tech Talk today, um, I want to say Wednesday, about, uh, it might have been Thursday, about malvertising, adware, an ad network that was spreading flash malware. And it's the scenario we've talked about over and over again in TechSnap, where if you can compromise the ad network, you can distribute out a, a browser malware on a pretty major basis. And this time it was actually focusing on Linux. Okay, Noah, let's shift gears and talk about LibreOffice. Version 5.0 was released this week. And honestly, when this first got put in the dock, uh, when you put this in there, I said, oh, man, what the hell are we going to talk about with Libre freaking Office? But uh, actually, it's kind of interesting. And, and I know you're pretty excited, so I'll let you start, and then I'll tell you what I'm excited about. So LibreOffice 5.0, Noah, what do you think? All right. Uh, I, the, anyone who hasn't heard me uh, talk about this, I, I, uh, I also will get off the – by the end of the year, I promise to get off my fanboy trainism. But – um, I had a user earlier this year that confused LibreOffice as Apple software and it kind of lit a fire under me and, and kind of said to the, to the, you know, we all come at this with a bias, but to a person that isn't familiar with what Microsoft Office is or what Google Docs is or what LibreOffice is, they don't know what, where that ranks in the scheme of things. She looked at yeah. LibreOffice and to her, that looked like a piece of software that Apple would produce. Uh, and that was kind of exciting. And then I, that kind of, that kind of lit the fire. And then I had, an, I've had opportunities throughout the year to talk to the LibreOffice folks and I've kind of seen what they're like and <clears throat> what their motivations are. And it's just, it's maybe like LibreOffice that much more. And of course, then they had the mm. document Freedom Day, which we were just a, just a, uh, just a hair away from being able to participate in, but didn't make it. And this week yeah. they released 5.0. Um, and they had they it 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 has it has it has a a bunch of different things that as I was kind of going through I'm like this is this is the right place to be focusing attention on with one exception I'll get to that in a second but um they have new icons they have a new sidebar or they have a, a new icons a, a new menus and the new sidebar so it so basically they have gone through and they're continuing to work on the UI now I thought the UI was pretty good as is unfortunately as Chris was saying earlier we can't actually find screenshots of it so it's <laughs> I can't really say definitively that I really like the new UI, but I like the fact that somebody <laughs> is concentrating on the UI. Um, they have they have uh, they have improvements for their ability to uh, interact with Microsoft Office, and of course that's a huge piece, right? First question I get asked anytime we install LibreOffice is, "Is this going to work with 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 Microsoft Office? If I email a, a file to Fred, is he going to be able to open it? If Fred emails a file to me, will I be able to open it?" Um, yes, is 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 what I'm taking from uh, from reading their release notes. Um, and of course, then they're going to continue to work on on stability and overall performance, which I've never mm -hmm. had LibreOffice crash. And at least if I'm, I'm mm. thinking about it, if it has, it, it it's so seldom that I don't even recall a specific time. The one yeah. exception, the one thing I was sad to see that isn't coming, and in fact, there's not even a mention of it, 
there's still nothing about collaborative editing. And I think well, that's let me a big take deal. over. Let me take over from here because there's you're right. There's no no collaborative editing yet, but we might have some really good news about some of the back end work necessary to make that possible. I'll get to that in just a second. Uh, longtime contributor to open source, Michael Meeks, posted over on uh, people.gnome.org about some of the underhood progress in uh, LibreOffice 5.0. And Noah, this is the part where Chris gets excited, because this is some of the cool stuff for me. Uh, so let's start with this. Uh, a GTK3 backend and Wayland support. But before I talk about that, I want to talk about VCL. VC, the VCL toolkit, which LibreOffice uses a lot. So any improvements you make to the VCL toolkit helps LibreOffice on a massive scale. So one of the largest areas of work in LibreOffice 5.0 is actually in the VCL toolkit itself. The graphics toolkit LibreOffice uses for all of the widgets and all of the rendering. In 5.0, they've modernized and improved several aspects and bringing them in line with cross-platform toolkits. Now, Noah mentioned on the pre-show, and, and I, he got me thinking. I, I couldn't really think of a lot of other applications, but he's like, Chris, can you name another application that's more relevant and more prevalent on the Linux desktop? And so then when you think about it in that context, what they do here really kind of matters. And so that's why the fact that they've just finished a very rough initial GTK3 port hacked together uh, by uh, Michael Meeks is kind of a big deal. Uh, they call it the GTK-Broadway project, and however, uh, most of it's done, 80% of it is done, uh, they've been able to get this really close to completed. Now, why that matters is going to be Wayland support. So with 5.0 and the GTK3 backend, and using CPU rendering, they're essentially 80% of the way there to have full Wayland support for LibreOffice. That's really a really big deal. And also having GTK3 support is a big deal. And that's thanks to a lot of help from somebody at Red Hat. Another thing to come in here is the OpenGL rendering backend also was significantly matured in this version, allowing them to talk directly to the hardware to accelerate much of the rendering with large number of bug fixes and improvements. That's a big deal. Uh, and then, uh, last but not least... Uh, something that's kind of an important aspect to this is a ton of groundwork was done for the Android and Ubuntu Touch versions of LibreOffice. Yeah, Ubuntu Touch versions. The developers from the Document Foundation haven't gotten into too much detail about their plans, but they've said that the Office suite is coming to Android. Coupled with the things we already know about Ubuntu Touch, we can safely say that LibreOffice 5.0 will bring some very interesting changes to the mobile platform from Canonical. This is from a soft PD article. A new version for, the, for new endeavors, LibreOffice 5.0, is the cornerstone of the mobile clients on Android and Ubuntu Touch, as well as the upcoming cloud version. As such, LibreOffice 5.0 serves as the foundation of current developments and is a great platform to extend, innovate, and collaborate. So this not only is the, basis, the version they will base off for Android and Ubuntu Touch, but Noah, they've also done some back-end improvements on a LibreOffice kit, headless rendering improvements, and the LibreOffice online bit. So LibreOffice kit includes the basis for a new work targeting LibreOffice at the cloud. And I think this is where they're going to add in collaborative document editing. I hope so. Through this, through this LibreOffice kit that includes LibreOffice online bits. They began the work on version 5.0. So it could be near, Noah. It could be near. Yeah, they, that's, every time I talk to somebody, and I, that's my one criticism is if they really want to stay competitive as an office suite, I think they really, really, really need to start concentrating. And I mean, yesterday need to be concentrating on, on collaborative editing. Cause that's, that's, that's a big thing now. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I, you know, right now I'm dealing with questions uh, from people that say it was incompatible with Microsoft office. I have a feeling in the not too distant future, it's going to be, well, how do I access this from home? And if I, if my answer has to be mm. put that on a thumb drive, copy it and move it to home, 
as compared to Google Docs or or uh, or Office 365, I think, or whatever that is, 363. I never. Can or remember. in reality, your answer is going to be uploaded to Google Docs. Well, yeah, but then it's going to open yeah. with Google Docs. It's not going to open. Yeah, with, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. Right. That's the thing. But that, that's what yeah. I'm saying. If you want to stay competitive, uh, we need a solution, and we need one like now. Actually, a couple of days ago. Well, let's just keep. We keep seeing them when we go to these events. Let's keep asking them where it's at. We'll just keep asking. Mm-hmm. We'll keep getting an update. We'll find out. Hey, uh, are you bummed? The Yala tablet has a slight delay, uh, but don't worry. It's coming. Uh, in fact, the first batch of tablets shipped to developers as loan devices just recently. Also, the Sailfish OS SDK is soon getting an update enabling code, uh, coding Sailfish OS apps for the tablet using the new virtual emulator that's got an update. The Yala did just recently face some unforeseen updates. Issues were happening during manufacturing with flashing Sailfish OS onto the uh, storage card of the device. Solving these issues did take a while for the Yala folks, and mainly because they uh, didn't even notice it till late into the evening. And because of this, they ended up having to bump the production, which caused a whole cascade, a domino effect. Uh, but they've been able to work through that now. And uh, all components, as of July 27th, have been mounted onto circuit boards and are ready for manufacturing. Developer units are going out the door. Noah, did you get one of these things? What do you no, think about not, the Yala tablet? Not yet. I, uh, I was, I was, uh, it's, on my, it's on my list of things to do is to put Yala on my or uh, selfish OS on my uh, on the Nexus and, mm-hmm. and give that a shot. But everyone that uses it tells me every time I describe my problems with mobile operating systems, selfish seems to be the answer from the people that are in the know. So I'm excited to see if 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 that can actually be an answer. But like you, I have some serious concerns about app compatibility. And I'm told that you can just install any APKs. You can install the Play Store even on selfish OS. So that shouldn't be an issue. Um, but, yes. but yeah, I guess the other problem is, and, and I have to admit that this is a problem for me, is that I have been really impressed with Lollipop, like to the point that I can't point to a single thing that has really bitten me other than my hotspot issue. And other than that, it's, Android has been the mobile operating system I've been looking for. Now, we still have. Well, the, well hold on a second. We, I, I'm not I'm not looking over the trust issue. Uh, my fundamental, my fundamental lack of trust in, in the, in the cooperating system itself. But as far as from a usability standpoint, I can't point to anything that isn't working for me, at least right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that is kind of, that is sort of the issue. Well, we'll see, but this could be a pretty competitive uh, device if they ship. But I mean, the hardware alone looks extremely mm-hmm. impressive mm-hmm. here. Yeah. If you're familiar with what it looks like, it's pretty cool. Now let's talk about this next story. Uh, and I'm surprised that you put this in the ra- ra- lineup, but, uh, I don't know. It's probably worth talking about. Uh, it's a petition on wethepeople.gov, the White House website, the you know uh, petitions.whitehouse.gov, mm-hmm. uh, to encourage the federal government to adopt open source technologies whenever possible. Uh, we we believe that the federal government, it states, for the security of the information it manages and the efficient allocation of the public's funds, should divest itself of cost of proprietary software contracts whenever possible. And then they talk about uh, you know taxpayers' money should go towards open source. Now here's the thing, Noah. It needs ninety nine. Thousand nine hundred and thirty-one signatures by September fourth, two thousand and fifteen, and right now it has. And by the way, it's August seventh, two thousand and fifteen. It has sixty-nine signatures. So, so let's start. Let's start with this. Tell me why you're surprised. Why you're surprised that that uh, that I have to put that in the show notes? I guess let's start there. Uh, that you actually think that this petition site does anything? Oh no, I don't. I don't necessarily. I'm not, that wasn't what I get. Okay, that's fair enough. I guess I don't necessarily think it, it, it has the it necessarily has the the power to impact anything. However, I do think that there it's a discussion worth having 
that if we're going to take our tax dollars and be forced to give them to the federal government, the federal mm-hmm. government is going to then go spend them on software. Why is it they? Uh, why is it we are foolishly spending those tax dollars on software that any of us that are in the know are fully aware yeah, that buddy. those are bad? Those are bad investments. And, and I spend yeah, most of my day explaining to 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 CEOs and presidents of organizations why they don't need to spend fourteen thousand dollars to upgrade their office suite in their you know hotel or clinic or whatever. Uh, and why is it that we're not having that discussion at the federal level, particularly because it's my money in in, in it? You know, when I'm at a client's location at the end of the day, if they did want to buy Microsoft Office, I send them a bill and then they send me a check and then they purchase Microsoft Office. Really, what's happening at the federal level is that the federal government is coming in and saying we are going to spend your money to buy Microsoft Office when LibreOffice would do all the things that they want to do. So I think the discussion is worth having, even if this petition isn't itself isn't going anywhere. I agree. I agree. I was just kind of ribbing you. And it really, if we could get up to 100,000 signatures, then they are, at least have to respond. They don't have to actually do it, but they should have to respond to the concept. And I think it's a, it's, it's a question I would love to actually hear them address. It's not like open source is a new thing. It's something that's been around for a while now. They have people there that know about it. They employ it in their own, in their own um, systems. Mm-hmm. So why not? I would like to hear an answer to that. And so I think it is actually worth, uh, worth talking about. And the link to this petition is going to be in the news section of episode 377 of the Linux Action Show. We've had a couple of people are in the chat room say they're signing it right now. Should we refresh and see if we have any signatures? Let's see what, let's see what the last effect is. Totally nothing. 69 so well, far. Don't, do, do, to, do. There's a couple of things you got to fill out to, to sign it, right? You can't just click. I, I, I support this measure. I think you got to enter in like your phone number and your oh, address. And so, I, I, I thought you just walk up to Mr. Mr. Obama and say, hello, President Obama. And hello, he says, everybody. And then you just have, yeah, yeah. And then he just, he just files for it right there. All right. So there you go. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. If you want to uh, maybe push that conversation forward, wouldn't it be amazing to actually get an answer to that question? That'd be a hell of a follow-up. That'd be a hell of a follow-up. But I don't know if it could happen. September 4th, uh, basically less than a month to get 100,000 signatures. <laughs> All right, come on, last audience. Prove me yeah. right here. Yeah, come on. Let's this make it matters. happen. Make, make it happen, everybody. All right, no, Well, that's all the news for this week. It's time the Linux Action Show arms you with the basics to make sure that your home network or maybe even your small business network doesn't suck. But first, we're going to tell you about our segment sponsor, System76. Go over to System76.com right now. And if you get something, won't you tell them the Linux Action Show sent you? These are systems built to run Linux. They got laptops. They got desktops, servers, and they even got swag. But go over and look at those desktops. Oh, man. Oh, man. Ooh, look at that Meerkat. Man, I love these. And also, they got the Retail Performance. And then that Silverback workstation, what I wouldn't do, what I wouldn't do. Leopard Extreme also is a monster. And then check out their new System76 swag. Noah, have you seen this stuff? No. They got laptop bags now. Look at these. Look how sharp these look. That does look sharp. That looks really good. They look really nice. Yeah, they look really nice. And so System76 desktops built right here in the US of A, when you get them repaired, they fix them right here in the US of A. They have laptops that are not going to have problems with sleep. The webcam works out of the box. You can reload your distro. And you don't have to spend hours and hours making things work. And, of course, everything's designed to work with Ubuntu perfectly. Go over to System76.com and get yourself a nice rig built for Linux. That way you don't have to fight with your hardware and you get to play with your Linux. System76.com and tell them, tell them the Linux Action Show. Send you laptops, desktops, and servers. Go check them out. System76.com. <clears throat> 
Now, we dance around this issue a lot. We talk about like different servers you can set up on your home network and different ways to use Linux. But something that's sort of fundamental that if you don't get it right, you're not going to have a good time with Linux is sort of the basic networking elements and components. And this is something that we sort of have never really sat down and discussed with you guys. And it's kind of maybe a fundamental that we've overlooked. And so we thought we should probably do an overview of some of this kind of stuff and talk about why some of the defaults when you have a home network, some of the defaults on some of these devices actually don't work so well with Linux and why maybe you might want to change some of these. And that's maybe a good place to start, Noah, is it seems like that's probably something a lot of people would run into Mm -hmm. is a lot of the defaults on their home network. When they're getting started, they sit down and they want to kind of understand what's going on. There's probably some generic configurations they're going to begin with, don't you think? Right. So let's start by just simply identifying uh, pieces of equipment. So a lot of times you'll have you'll you'll take from the ISP, they'll give you this box and they'll say, here is your here's your wireless modem. Well, there is no such thing as a wireless modem. I mean, there is, but there's not. A modem simply has two interfaces that are connecting uh, that are that that is essentially bridging a network. So essentially, the network jack that comes out of the modem is the network jack of the ISP's router. That's essentially what you can think of it like. Um, and but they call it a wireless modem. And really, what it is is it's a modem, it's a router, it's a switch, and oftentimes it's an access point, and it's all in one little box. Well, mm-hmm. it suffers from what I call spork syndrome. Spork sp- syndrome being it's like. Uh, when you're going to eat your dinner with a spork, is it a particularly good spoon? Well, not really. Isn't it a good fork? Not so much. But it, hey, it's a fork and a spoon all in one. And you see the same thing with compact stereos. They, they 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 compromise to fit a lot of boxes into one. And the same thing happens with a wireless modem, so to speak. You essentially you have a really crappy access point, a not so good or configurable switch, and a very limited router and a okay modem. And they put it all into one box and they sell it to you or rent it to you for you know sixty nine bucks. And you can break that stuff out. And expand your ability to do things with it. And a lot of the tools that are a lot of the functionality that you can get out of those routers are also natively built into Linux. I'll give you an example. A VPN. Let's say you wanted to be able to have your laptop out in in California while your home is in Seattle. And you want to be able to open your laptop and access a a, a local web server or access a, or access your local network share or maybe print a file for for your wife or your kids or whatever. You can do all of that uh, with a simple VPN, and that's not terribly difficult to set up, but it does require you to have a router that is capable of doing that. So mm-hmm. we do uh, we uh, use uh, Microtex anytime we're, we're doing something at, at Altusbee, and I know that's what you have at JB, and you have another one that I think is eventually going to make its way into your house. Yep. I mean, so we're just going to, I was just going to, uh, you know, just kind of walk through uh, some of the default settings. So there, there are a couple of main components that the that the router is do the router itself is doing for you um that we just kind of take for granted and the first is uh the that it's acting as a DHCP server as the dynamic host uh, uh, configuration protocol so essentially when your computer boots up it sends a broadcast out and says hey i'm a new client on the network and i would like to know how to participate in this network could you tell me and the DHCP mm-hmm. server responds and it says all right here's an ip address for you and here is the subnet mask, and here is the way that you talk out to other networks if you want to do that, and here's where you go, here's the internet phone book, here's how you look up different uh, computers on the network, or at lo- if, if I don't have it, here's the next available phone book for you. Um, and so, and that's what DHCP is doing, and your, your router, you can set that up to be your computer to do that. So, for instance, a lot of times, if it's a large-scale deployment, Will you CentOS to run the DHCP server? 
And that gives yeah. you a couple more options. But really, inside of a home network, that's unnecessary. The router. But that is actually kind of an interesting element of this is your router is doing a lot of components that on a larger network would almost be broken out into dedicated servers. Mm-hmm. So the, the DHCP service that Noah's talking about here, you know, when you turn your computer on and they connect it to the Wi-Fi network or you connect it to your network and you don't open up network settings and plug in a static IP address, you're using DHCP. Right. And uh, that that is almost sort of like network magic when you think about it. When you think about the fact that there's one central service that's coordinating, it's memorizing which MAC addresses are connecting to it and which IP addresses it gave to those MAC addresses and making sure they always get those same ones and then storing all of that. That's a really great service. And, you know, in some networks, uh, it's actually sort of a way to even manage your network. Mm-hmm. So here, I, th- I and I, <clears throat> no, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but like here at JB1, what we've done is everything is DHCP, mm-hmm. even the systems we assign static. Mm-hmm. But what we've done is in our Microtech firewall, we've gone in there and said when the, when, the, when the computer with this MAC address connects to the network, always give it this IP address every single time. Mm-hmm. So essentially, it has a static address, but it's a static address being assigned by the DHCP server. Now, the reason we do that is because centrally, we could then update the IP scheme and not have to go around to each machine and go re-plug in the IP addresses, but that way they always have the same IP. So you can get kind of a mix of static IP addresses and still using still use DHCP. Do you do that very commonly, Noah? Yeah, I mean, I, I do it. I tend to do it a little bit differently than, than we set it up at JB1 in that I, uh, I reserve a block of IP addresses and then I plug those in uh, statically to the machine. But as you were pointing out, one of the big advantages... Uh, or, or I should I should say to add on one of the advantages of doing it your way is that if you want to go reload one of those machines, you don't have to remember what the IP address is. You don't have to remember any right. of that. You just yes, restore yeah, it yeah. and you plug it back in and somehow automatically it receives the exact same information that it had before. Yeah, because the MAC address doesn't change. Right. So a lot of I noticed that one thing that was uh, that was really confusing to a lot of people, especially when I hire new people, is the, this concept of a subnet mask. Now we could spend, or I could spend the next six episodes of last, you know, <laughs> going into subnetting. So we're not going to do that. But okay. but there is so everyone is familiar with the octets of an IP address. We have one nine two dot one six eight dot zero dot one. So there are four octets, right? And essentially, um, inside of each one of those octets, there are eight bits. And so if we divide, if we if we add those up, you have eight, sixteen, twenty four. Help me with my math, thirty two, right? And so I'm bringing up a cheat sheet for you right oh, here while yeah. you talk oh, about wonderful. it. And so yeah. essentially when we when we want to block a certain amount of those bits off we are saying that part of this part of this address is reserved for the network and part of it is reserved for individual clients. So the most common subnet mask we see is 255.255.255.0 and that means that the first 3 octets are referring to the network and the last octet is referring to clients. So you have an available addresses of 0 to 255, 255 mm-hmm. is the broadcast, 0 is the network, so we're left with 254 usable clients on the network. For the most part, in your home, that's going to be more than enough. Now, in, in an IPv4 scheme, I could actually see you exhausting 254 addresses if you're using home automation, because there are some home automation systems that every light switch mm. has an IP address, every light yeah. bulb has an IP address. And if that's, wow. yeah, and if you think about it in that regard, you might drop down instead of a slash 24, drop to a slash 16. In other words, marking off 16 of those uh, of those ones and zeros and saying the last two octets are reserved for clients. And now you have 254 uh, uh, on one octet and 254 on the other. So yeah. 254 to the power of 254. No one in their house is going to exhaust that, I, I don't think, at least not at this point. Um hmm. 
but so but if, so I, I guess the I guess the the moral of the story is if you if you if you have a very simplistic network and you don't know what to put in the subnet mask, use two fifty five dot two fifty five dot two fifty five dot zero. Or if we're using cider notation, yeah. put a slash twenty four. Most of the time, that's going to be your default. And one thing that I've noticed that might be important to anyone that is running a, a home office, a lot of the consumer grade Linksys routers will not let you put anything else anything greater of a subnet. So the maximum amount of clients that can connect to like the Linksys N300, you can have a maximum of 254 clients. That's it done. After that, uh, you're hosed. So if you have a lot of, a lot of devices that are connecting to the network, that's not going to work. Now the second service, and I know we've made huge use of this at JB is DNS or the domain name service. Right. And essentially what that's right. doing is it's the phone book of your network. So it's really, really, although network admins are going to laugh at me and go, of course we do that. It's not really practical to memorize IP addresses. So you don't walk up and say, oh, just go ahead and log into that server 192.168.0.50. Yeah, you're laughing because you're like, yeah, we do that all the time. What are you talking about? Every time I sit down, I'm like, yeah, just log into the server. It's 192.168. Yeah, it's fine. Right, it's right. fine. But, yeah. uh, but, but most people don't do that. When you go to Google.com, you don't go, oh, let me 74.61.54.31 that for you. You say, let me Google that for you. And you type in you type a, a, a you know an English uh, uh, host into your browser and it returns it goes it queries the DNS server and that DNS server spits back an IP address and then you are given that resource so that can be really advantageous so for example at JB one we have the the you know the 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 uh, the, the Arch KVM so it's a it's a it's a um, it's a VM server right yeah, it's a KVM virtual box right and so virtual instead machine. of typing in the IP address every time they want to access the web UI to change something on that we've given it a host name so now they just t- I don't even remember what it is but you type in you know KVM yeah. into the web browser or and it- another example is uh, we have a uh, we have a dedicated NUC in the studio that is constantly generating a reruns RTMP feed. That right, we can yeah. tune into and display reruns, and so instead of memorizing one ninety two one sixty eight zero dot whatever it whatever it is, mm-hmm. I just say you know uh, reruns. I just enter reruns in there, and the DNS takes care of it. And this is the part I think that a lot of times when Linux users switch from Windows to over to desktop Linux, and they are using KDE or GNOME, yeah, and they go to browse the network, mm-hmm. and they just get nothing, or like the results don't work, or the connections time out constantly. They they look at that and they go, oh, you know, Linux sucks. Linux Linux can't properly do bra- network browsing. This worked fine under Windows. Mm-hmm. And what it really is, it's a, it's a failure of name resolution very often on your network. If you try to browse the network using your file manager and you're not getting anywhere, you're probably having uh, unsuccessful name resolution. And like if you can't if you can't open up a terminal and ping another computer on your network by its computer name, your network res- name resolution isn't working properly. And so what DNS can do for you is solve all of these problems. And additionally, on top of that, if you use a local DNS server to sort of just cache your DNS queries out on the Internet, right. you'll find over time, man, does just simple things speed up. Like if you've ever seen like um, when you're loading a Web page down in the corner, it says waiting for server to reply or waiting for server to resolve. That kind of stuff, when you have a local DNS server, goes away because mm-hmm. it just, mm-hmm. you know, it resolves as fast as your LAN can resolve it. And it makes web pages load just a little teensy bit even faster. Not to mention it makes things like Chromecast discovery much easier from your tablet. It makes, you know, network browsing much easier. It makes like if you have, a, if you have like Romania or another remote desktop application that is able to sort of discover your network and show you all the VNC servers or SSH servers on your network and they show you their name, if that never auto-populates for you, right. your name resolution isn't working. That's why DNS is critical, you don't know, you think? And the other thing you can do is, let's say, and I mean, I fully acknowledge that this is this is somewhat of a security through obscurity thing, 
But there, what I've done on my son's computer is I have pointed his computer to our DNS server in the house, and then I have locked the network changes so he can't change it back. And then what I do is I can go in. And so, for example, I have banned Apple.com from my house. So if you go to Apple.com, it redirects you. <laughs> it redirects you to RedHat.com. And I can do okay. that all in D- – okay, I'm just kidding. But you, you get the idea. I can I, – I Actually, get- you know what I used to do is I, I – I, uh, for, a, for a client of oh, mine is I would redirect Facebook and YouTube.com. Oh, okay. To a local page that would then uh, talk about the company's mm-hmm. best use policies. Yeah, and, and so and so some of that you can do. And then and this might be a little more advanced than we really want to dive into now. But one of the one of the things that I use DNS for all the time is if you're familiar with what a hairpin NAT is, essentially when like, let's say, take my SIP system. When my phone looks out and it looks for SIP.kernelinux.com, it it tries to resolve that name. And if it was resolving the public IP address of my own public IP address it sends that traffic out and it can't get back in without doing some really funky things inside of the firewall. So what I've done with DNS is I've just told it resolve locally to the 192.168.0.10 or whatever. And so anytime I'm in the house, when it queries sip.kernelinux.com, it resolves my local IP address and connects locally right over the LAN. Hmm. And then I've yeah. also registered that with my public DNS server. So anytime I'm outside of the house, if I if I query sip.kernelinux.com, it uses my public IP, and then that does the 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 regular NAT uh, transition to pass the traffic through. And that's that's a really really simple way that I can make one uh, add into Zoiper. And see see what we did there? We tied two two things together. I can make one ad, uh, one addition into Zoiper for entry for an account, and that account will work whether I'm inside or outside, regardless of of setting up firewall. And that's all done with DNS. So it's a really it's a really cool yeah. way to, to get and some of that done. And you can do DNS like Noah's saying on your router. You can do DNS like bind on a Linux box. You can do it with some appliances. We're going to talk about. But I also, you know what? It's worth mentioning. Like Tiskmonk Two says in the chat room. There's also the really, really, really simple DNS solution. If you don't want to worry about any of this, you just have one rig, you can edit your Etsy host mm-hmm. file. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is sort of a DNS resolution light. Uh, I'm showing you here on uh, my machine. Um, this is my Etsy host file. I've just catted the file for you guys. And you can see right here where I could go in here and I could say these IP addresses. The format's very, 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 very simple. It's the IP address, and then you tab over... The domain and the machine, the host name you want to give it and its domain, and then just the simple host name right here. So you could give, you could assign anything, any IP address, your own custom host name in this file. And because the way Linux works by default, and you can change this, but the way it look, and the way NS, the way it looks works by default is it will first check the host file before it ever queries DNS right. or anything else. Um, and there, you, you can change that, uh, and you can change the order and how it. Uh, what uh, what preference it uses, but for the most part, right? So if you go to if you just look at Etsy and it's hosts with an S, host with an S at the end, hosts, and you edit that file with root privileges, you can you can do you can do really quick, easy, breezy DNS resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the long term solution if if you have a couple computers is to do it at the network level. And you yeah? know what I've done with oh, I I actually like the the host idea. And in fact, what I, on my on my work laptop, I actually have my host file set up for um, Microtech rtr.com links to the default IP address of the microtex links this rtr.com uh, is pointed to the default uh, IP address of the links oh. so I can go in when I'm when I, or I, we have our access points same thing so when I sit down with my work laptop I don't have to yeah. I don't have to type that in a thousand times I just I, and yeah. they're all bookmarked up at the top and I just click on the one I want um and that that's using that uh, that se host file so it is it is a great way to to do some of that it would also be nice like for instance 
uh, if I wanted to, I have no need, the, the, the kind of sites that I'm blocking, I used Apple as a joke, but the kind of sites that I'm actually blocking for my son, I have no interest in, in anyone in the rest of the house doing it. So I just put it on our DNS server. But if there was something I wanted the adults in the house to be able to access, but not the kids, I might consider doing that. It's not giving my kids pseudo access right. and just modifying the host file. That'd be a great way host to do file. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, And you don't have to worry about any parental control software or anything like that. It's just a simple host file. Now, so let's stay on this train of stuff that you could run as its own dedicated machine. If you're enterprise, you could spend tens of thousands of dollars on this, or it's really just built into the basic functionality of your ISP's router, and that's really the firewall functionality, mm-hmm. because it includes that too, doesn't it? Yeah. So with the, with the firewall, essentially what we're looking at doing is <clears throat> analyzing traffic and then blocking connections, for, or blocking traffic one way or the other. So I can have outbound rules or I can have inbound rules. And in other words, I'm analyzing traffic leaving or I'm analyzing traffic coming in. So for the most part, most default configurations will block all incoming traffic uh, that that has it that doesn't have an outbound initiated request and by default won't block anything outbound. So I can visit any site, I can go anywhere I want, but until I have until I have a, a randomly generated port, maybe we should talk about that. If you I don't know if you can pull up ipchicken.com. Yo, well, should I? Oh yeah, never mind. Oh, so so anyway, so essentially, what what'll happen? Everyone else can do this. You can go to ipchicken.com, and essentially, what it will do is it will show you your randomly generated port, and the the that is how that randomly generated port. So I went there, and it gives me my IP address, and on uh, uh, below it says remote port five eight seven six nine. So that tab inside of Firefox with that IP address is how I'm getting data from that website. And if I were to open a new mm-hmm. tab or a new browser, I would get another randomly generated port, and that is how. Uh, you're able to use one IP address to essentially do five different things. I can browse five different web pages at one time. Right, and every every machine, it's, it's good to point out here, every machine by, behind the firewall is doing this. So the right. firewall has to keep track of this for all of the machines behind it. Really, every single, actually every outbound connection, not just every yeah. machine, every outbound connection. So every tab I have open, every browser, every Skype window, all of those are are are, are essentially ha- having one of these, and you're right. The router has to keep track of all those so it knows where to send that, that traffic back. Now, I can do some fancy firewall rules and say, for example, in, in at, at hotels that we work at, we block their ability to actually access the web portal of the router. And the way we do that is by telling the firewall, if the, if the traffic is initiated from this specific subnet, from this specific port on this specific IP range, don't allow them to talk to this specific device. Uh, with anything other than obviously their, their internet traffic, and that is all being done at the firewall. Now you could do that at your house um, and say, "I don't want my kids to be able to go monkeying around with the router," and you could block mm-hmm. them from from being able to do that, or you could block a, a whole range of IP addresses, or you could whitelist a whole range of IP addresses. Of course, you can also block uh, in incoming connections too. So, for example, you might allow uh, SSH connections and say, "When it's on this particular port, I want you to initiate an SSH connection with this server." And when it's on this particular port, I want you to initiate a connection with this other server. And that can all be done uh, at the firewall. And if you are using the built-in uh, router utility of, of your cable modem, uh, you're going to be a little handicapped. So, for example, most of those will mm. require that the inbound port is the same as uh, the port on the inside of the network. So, for example, if yeah, I very limited. right, so if I initiate a connection to SSH port 2222, it mm. assumes that the connection on the inside of the LAN might be 2222, but of course there are some devices like my refrigerator that I can't change the SSH port. It is statically set at 22. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Could you? My refrigerator. I'm sorry. My refrigerator. I'm sorry. If you want to SSH into my refrigerator, you don't SSH uh-huh. into your refrigerator from outside the house? 
Uh, no, well, I do. I'm sorry. I, I'm just I'm having a hard time connecting with this particular pain. But continue right. on. Well, so mm-hmm. if I wanted to SSH from outside of my house to my refrigerator, then I would need to use <laughs> port two 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 one, and I would need the router then to actually initiate that uh, that that request on port twenty two, and I can yeah. do that. That way, I can get into my refrigerator from outside the house. Mm. Of course, naturally. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, firewalls are something that like if it's like it's one of the first areas that when you start to get a little more comfortable with your home networking setup, you start to want to replace one. And uh, I uh, here at the studio, we have a Microtech firewall that uh, sits um, between our cable modem and the rest of the network. And then at my house, I still have a PFSense firewall. And so I've been kind of uh, taking advantage of running one or the other in two different locations. And, um, you know, the Microtech has actually been a very solid performer. At PFSense, I'm a pretty big fan of, but the Microtech has been a really solid performer. And depending on the kind of appliance you get or the kind of device you get, like a PFSense or Microtech or some of the others we're about to talk about, a lot of the functionality we just described can all be wrapped up in, in a couple of clicks. So everything we just described, you could go do on your own with Linux uh, and configure it all using configuration files. And that feels pretty damn good. And it really is the best way to do it long term. But also, everything can really be done with a lot of turnkey solutions. So there's a big range of how you can implement this stuff. And some of the stuff we're probably going to even go in a little deeper uh, in the future. But I thought we should cover some of it. So before we get into, like, the easy turnkey stuff, Noah, is there anything else you want to cover in, like, the, the basics and the fundamentals? Yeah. Uh, just uh, just lastly, um, setting up an access point. So, uh, you know, once you, get your, once you get your router set up and you have all of that configured... For the most part, there are some configuration things you can do on switches, but I wouldn't imagine anyone would have a need to do that in their house. The one thing yeah. that you'll be left with, though, if you go out and buy a really nice router, is you'll realize that a lot of them don't have any sort of wireless access. Um, and so the a, a really good, solid, standalone access point is the is the Ingenious. And they're like 40, 50 bucks, um, and they have a nice little web UI, so you don't have to be... You don't have to, you don't have to, uh, you know, learn a, a command line or anything like that. As a Microtech does, too. It has a, a web UI. But uh, just hmm. the only real important thing that I see people do wrong all the time is channeling. And that is that you mm-hmm. have three channels on, on a regular, uh, you know, BG. And now, and now they've kind of it's kind of gotten away. We have channels 156 and 153 and stuff. But traditionally, you have three channels you can work with one, six and 11. And those are the only three uh, channels, at least in the U.S. Yeah, in the U.S. Yeah, right. Right. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. this way. <laughs> this would only apply to U.S. people. Um, one, one, six and 11 that don't step on, on each other. And so if you pick anything else in there, you are wasting, uh, you're wasting frequency spectrum and you are polluting your own ability to talk to your access point. So set your access point between one, six and 11. And I would download a program called Wi-Fi analyzer. Wi-Fi on, analyzer. Yep. yep I was just pulling it up and you mm-hmm. can, you'll be able to see around your house and around your neighborhood what they are. Now I noticed something interesting when I moved into my house. I was unpleasantly surprised to learn how much pollution there was, but everyone <laughs> had set the router. Most of these routers apparently are so dumb that they look and see where the strongest signal is, and then they just move themselves. So I, I at the time, I had a Cisco access point, so I just cranked that sucker up and said, I want channel six now, and everyone else went, six, uh, I guess we'll go over to seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And oh, then every, really? Yeah, everyone in the whole neighborhood, their routers automatically moved off of six. So now I'm the only that's one with awesome. six. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> you know what? That's uh, that's uh, that's how we go. Uh, that's how we roll. That's right. <laughs> that's nice, dude. Yeah, Wi-Fi Analyzer is uh, one of the best tools ever, and uh, it's available for free really on the Android wish Play Store. Something like that existed for Linux. The closest I found is uh, Kismet. 
Yeah, Kismet's not bad, uh, but this is, you know, because you can just bust it out, and mm-hmm. I've gone over to, like, uh, businesses, and I've been like, yeah, your Wi-Fi is seriously seriously bad. And remember, do you remember also that that's how we discovered the, the new Vizio TV? Well, it's not new right? anymore, but the Vizio TV here at the studio yes. was, like, broadcasting its own access yeah. point. Yeah. And you'd, like, you're like, what? Our TV has a wireless access point? We had no idea until we used Wi-Fi Analyzer. I think it was Rakai <laughs> that actually figured that out. That was a really, yeah. re- that was one of those moments where you're like, wow, wow, what a security hole, and we had no idea. You could just yeah. connect to it. If I remember right, it put you on the network and you didn't need any sort of security to get into it. We were kind of devastated when we saw that. So in Wi-Fi Analyzer, not only that, but I take it to my house and, you know, I see that like exactly like you're saying, it's just a it's a cluster of uh, interference. And so just just doing this can make a huge difference. And, you know, going back to uh, Linux Unplugged this week, we had we played your segment uh, from Self where you talked about uh, you talked to the guys that ran the Internet there at Self. Yeah. And they t- uh, that episode, I think it was episode 104, is like some of the best information you could ever get to manage your own Wi-Fi network, either in your house or your small business. And then you combine that with something like Wi-Fi Analyzer. And I think a lot of times people will find that some of the wireless issues they have with Linux is just that wireless is a nightmare. It's just garbage. And you really have to set it up right. It's trickier than you think it is. And a lot of little things can throw it off. And if you use the tips in episode 104 of Unplugged and Wi-Fi Analyzer, uh, it, it makes a huge, huge difference. And then if you can get a great access point like the ingenious ones like Noah's talking about, uh, you're really set. It's it's a good combination. So there you go. So all right. So you ready for me to tell you about some of the turnkey solutions that I think uh, the Linux Action Show audience might be interested in? Turn my key. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So uh, the first one is IPFire. You can go to IPFire.org. And it's a, uh, it is a distribution that is it's, it's built it's, it's a purpose-built distribution for the gerb. It's a, from a technical point of view, IP Fire is pretty minimalistic. It's a hardened firewall system which, which comes with an integrated package manager called PackFire. And the primary task of PackFire is to also update the system with a single click, but also install like uh, bug fixes, security features, and feature enhancements. Uh, the other, another nice thing about PackFire in, uh, in IP Fire is you can add new functionality to the IP Fire system as you kind of go along. So as you want to become uh, a little more advanced, you can add nice things like file sharing services via Samba or FTP. Uh, you can add asterisks as a package, various command line tools like TCP dump and Nmap and Traceroute, which is really nice for troubleshooting. And IP Fire gives a, 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 a nice UI to set all of this up, including DNS management and firewall rules, all powered by Linux. Now, I haven't actually run in production myself. We're going to do a review probably in the future at some point. But this, everything we just talked about, all of the network stuff we just talked about, you, you can use IP Fire. From a live from a live USB thumb drive, where you can install it and get the stuff we were just talking about. So that's pretty cool. So that's IP Fire. There's a bunch out there, but there's one more I wanted to turn your attention to. Obviously, PF Sense is a good one, and that's just going to get an honorable mention this week because I also wanted to make room this week for one we don't really give a lot of attention to, and that's Smoothwall. And there's two versions of Smoothwall. There's Smoothwall, the super expensive version, and Smoothwall Express. Today we're going to talk about Smoothwall Express, which is the open source edition. Now, Noah, are you familiar with Smoothwall? No, I, I, I have. So I'll tell you, and you tell me if this is an outdated uh, concern of mine. But uh, back in the probably, I'd say, late 90s, early 2000s, I was really interested in doing some of this stuff. And what I mm-hmm. found was that the, that the fabric used for network cards wasn't as fast or wasn't fast enough to provide routing capabilities or switching capabilities. Oh, in PCs. Yeah, and, and maybe yeah. that's an outdated concern. It probably yeah, is. Yeah, no, it's not. I don't really find that to be an issue anymore. Definitely not for a while with PFSense, and, and really not with any of these that I've tested. Um, especially, you know, if you, don't, if you have less than a gigabit connection uh, out to the internet, it's definitely, I've, I mean, I, I've never really found it to be an issue. Uh, now, Smoothwall, smoothwall.org, 
their goal is to be here's basically it's simple enough to be installed by home users with no knowledge of Linux. So this is the one that's really supposed to be approachable. A wide variety of different network cards. Works with many different types of connections. So if you kind of have a, a wonky ISP, they, 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 one of their big goals is to try to accommodate all the different types of ISP setups around the world. You can manage all of it with your web browser, like a, also like IP Fire. It is specifically engineered to work with older hardware. They have an active community. And one of the nice things is they do have the commercial version, which means there is a commercial company behind it that's, you know, in it for the long haul. And I like that. And, of course, Smoothwall Express is the one you want, and I have a direct download link in the show notes. Last but not least, and then we're going to get off the turnkey solutions because I think we could actually dedicate entire episodes to each one of these. But last but not least, Chatroom wants us to desperately, desperately mention OpenWRT. Oh, yeah. Which is, kind of, yeah, which is great. It's a Linux distro basically for your embedded devices. So if you have an OpenWRT-compatible uh, router, you can take that crappy router with its limited OS that gets hardly any good updates from its OEM and you can replace it with a fully functional frickin' Linux box I, and the it, full power of it. I am ashamed of both you and myself that we didn't that I didn't think to put that in the show notes. And let me tell you why. Uh, self was impressive because the Wi-Fi there was really great, and the people that do it mm-hmm. they were really smart guys. We covered that in unplugged. Right. Except here's here's the thing though: they're using four or five hundred dollar access points at scale. They were using thirty dollar Netgear consumer grade routers and getting equal. All using OpenWRT. And getting equal, yeah. if not better, results because Zach, while he's a brilliant guy, had to walk around with his little uh, his little sniper antenna and tell people to turn their hotspots off. Scale, they're like, go ahead, turn on your hotspots. We don't care. Our network is good enough, and had no problems. Uh, and so, and they were doing that with consumer grade hardware running DDW or uh, sorry, OpenWRT. Um, so there is so there. I I don't think it's a stretch to say. That if you buy the right consumer grade stuff and put this and put uh, open WRT, you can have as good, if not better than a commercial solution in your house. I, I absolutely agree. And I, I have put I have put solutions like this in production before. Have you? And, uh, you know, you're not not open WRT, but yes. OK. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. Tomato and DDWRT years ago. OK. And uh, they, you know, one of the really, 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 really nice things about DDWRT is I was in a really old, it was built in the early 1900s uh, school building, mm-hmm. and I needed to get the same Wi-Fi network across all three floors. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's cement and metal. It right. was built, you know, way, 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 way back in the day when they never were concerned about radio signals passing through the floors. And DDWRT made it so straightforward to have a bunch of Wi-Fi access points that were extended over Ethernet. So I had all three plugged in over Ethernet, and they formed one seamless Wi-Fi network on each floor. And it really just... It was one of those things that I was able to put into production and then never had to revisit. It just worked solid, you know, like really nice, like solved a nice problem kind of thing. I wonder if there's a way to do uh, to do uh, open WRT and have it do uh, like an adoption uh, type of an access point mode. Like, so the, the, the one concern I would have with rolling open WRT into production is that that works great if you're doing four or five access points per floor. But there are some places where we have. 50 or 60 per floor, yeah, a couple hundred in the building. You need centralized management. Right, right. But here's the thing. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody out there is like, oh, you can do that in open WRT. That wouldn't surprise me in the least. I haven't, I haven't seen it myself, but if it exists, I would not be shocked in any way, shape, or form. Well, you know what? LinuxActionShow.reddit.com, episode 377 of the Linux Action Show, and let us know in the feedback thread there, or email us, LinuxActionShow at Reddit. Dot, Linux Action Show at JupiterBroadcasting.com or, or you read the contact page. Yeah, yeah what's yeah. that? No, I was just going to say, go to JupiterBroadcasting.com, click on the contact link, choose Linux Action Show from the drop-down menu, and let us know yeah. that way. 
That would be great. All right, Noah, that's the Linux Action Show's look at home networking basics for your Linux rig. That brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. But, you know, Noah, before we get out of here, we got some good feedback to get to, and we got some show stuff to talk about. You know, we've had a format change with this week's episode of the show that we're trying out for a little bit, and I want to address that here in the feedback segment. But first, let's get to the emails. The first email comes in from Chris M., and it's about change to the audio format. He says, I think this is a good idea to have an audio show. I've often have JB on in the background and only watch the video when I'm interested. So if you can have more interesting interviews in audio and a lot shorter videos for things that are great for video, then that's just perfect. I often struggle through a two-hour-long video for information that I'm looking for. Short videos will be easier to find with a Google search. Have videos for the audio with more in-depth details as needed. Thanks for the hard work, Chris. So what Chris is talking about is one of the things we're experimenting this week with is an audio-only or an audio-focused version of Linux Action Show where we record and produce from a standpoint of an audio show. Now, we have certain video visuals that we publish but from a production standpoint, we're focusing as an audio show. And uh, what he's talking about here is we might still have video production elements that we want to release when video is appropriate in this type of production style. So we'd have a separate video like we did for OSCON where we individually published each interview as its own standalone video. That way, if you were listening as a computer or on the audio version, you could go back to the show notes and watch maybe the Prism interview if you want to go check out the Librem laptops, for example. Right, Noah? Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, I... So you'll have to excuse me for a second while I get on a soapbox here. Um, both of us have been watching the the Reddit and some of the comments on YouTube and obviously the feedback that's sent in. And uh, to be honest, it can be a little frustrating. Um, and it can be frustrating because I feel like our intelligence is continually insulted. It, this whole idea. So first of all, let's let's uh, clarify a couple of things. This is not a Stallman issue. It is not a we are intentionally sacrificing the quality of the show for the purpose of uh, of using freedom respecting software. In fact, we've used Skype for the last like four weeks and Chrome for the three for three or four weeks before that. There is nothing in there that is that is particularly libre or freedom respecting. So that's not the case. It hasn't been the case. I'm not that not okay. So not the not. I think that's sort of that's sort of this sort of because that's a little disingenuous. Because long long term, if this format works, our goal is end to end open source Linux production. Absolutely. That is one of the goals we're driving towards. Absolutely. Here. And it, but what I'm saying is, at no point in the discussion has has it ever been. Well, here is a perfectly good solution, and the and the core reason we're not doing it is because of freedom. That hasn't been the case. There are practical ramifications. With so there is so let's start with this. The, the, to the best of my knowledge, to the best of your knowledge, there is no solidly stable video conferencing solution that works native, that works on Linux that is that is freedom respecting, at least, at least that that you or I could find. And so that leaves us with things like Chrome or Skype or uh, sorry, hang at least ones that at least ones that meet our expectations and production requirements. So in other words, even work, basically. Um, and so Chrome uh, screws the video up so bad that it, people are offering, literally offering to send me $25 webcams when I have a $1,500 camera connected to a $300 video capture device connected to a $1,500 uh, wild dog. So th- that is not, so Chrome clearly is not cutting it. And then that leaves us with Skype and Skype will only let you do 16 by nine video. If you're four by three, well, well, Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, yes. You mean yeah. it will, if you're using Linux or Mac, it will force you to use four by three. It will only let you use sixteen by nine if you're using Windows. Now, I don't. Have, I think it might work on the latest Mac version now. 
I don't have well is the 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 end result is the same. I don't have $2500 for a Mac and I don't have I am not purchasing a Windows computer to do a Linux show nor are hmm. nor are either of us going to sit and troubleshoot uh, Windows or Mac issues on on Sunday morning when something doesn't work. I'm fully willing to troubleshoot and invest time learning about how to fix issues on Linux. I am not going to do that on 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 Windows or Mac. And so there isn't a there isn't a a good choice to use. It is not it is a it is a practical ramification and it is a insult to our intelligence when people post things like change the aspect ratio from 43 to 16 by 9. It's in the settings menu. No it's not. No it's not. There is no way to do it. If there is a way to do it, somebody log into Linux, download Skype, install it and screen cap for me which option I change to make it do 16 by 9 and we'll go back to video. But there's the, and that people is what grinds my gears. That is, Tom? Yeah. All right, so now simmer down. Right, so right. I mean, because yes, I realize we've gotten a lot of feedback, and the thing is, is uh, I I actually don't even think it's about that. I mean, it is about all of those things, but what it's really about is. So uh, I was t- I was talking about this on the on the pre-show today, but you know we ended up with an, uh, enough extra time that we threw an extra bonus pick in. We were able to restructure the news. We were able to really just sort of sit down and have a great conversation about home networking and basic technologies there because this week we focused on the content Mm -hmm. and not having to focus on the visual presentation of it. But we still accomplished some visuals Mm -hmm. and that's, and there's a line we're trying to walk there. We may, there may eventually be a version where there's like some sort of behind the scenes version of the Linux show, Linux action show that you're watching. There's still some video where you can see us. There could be something like that in the future, but for right now, we're trying this in an iterative process and there's some other changes down the road or, or, or things coming up. That make a lot of sense for this. So uh, I, I, I'm appreciative to Chris M and others who are at least supportive while we try this out. Because you know, worst case scenario, we can always just go back to the way we did it before. Right. And best case scenario is we discover something new that's more genuine to the show that not only produces better content but also showcases the quality of content you can produce using Linux and open source technology. And that I think is a big deal. Well, and so going off of that, while I I stand by what I said earlier in that 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 the biggest hurdle was not a was not a fundamental focus on on the freedom software that it was there were actually practical practical uh, barriers to doing uh, video conferencing. While I stand by that, I would also say it is a little disingenuous to go on the air and say we do an app pick. We show you all the cool things you can do from the Linux desktop. And what what kind of message does that say? Is 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 the underlying message tone not look at all the cool things you can do with Linux, see how you can use Linux in everything, and then we don't use it? I mean, should we should that not be a core focus of the show is to try to use Linux whenever however we can? And I I I I do. I think there is some value in that. And there is and you know, there is some value in saying uh, if we're going to do video, if we're going to use Linux to, to make a Linux show, let's do where Linux's strengths are right now. That's audio. And I think we're on the cusp of video. I think we're very, very, very close. I think if we had uh, a couple extra thousand dollars, I think we could do video on Linux because we could. Well, have- here's what I like about it is we can sit here and we can take this time and we can apply our expertise to video production where it makes sense. So like, say we go on location and we're doing an event. We could do that entire thing under Linux now using video production. We can do that. That's something we can do now all under Linux. And we can continue to push that forward while we're also doing this. We can continue to work with an OBS developer to add the features to open broadcaster so that way we can do more video production under Linux. Mm-hmm. Like those efforts continue on even while we're doing this format experimentation. And even if this is like something we try over the summer, 
we are not discontinuing our efforts there. You're continuing to right. work with an OBS developer. We're still bringing a video camera down to LinuxCon, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. right? We're still we're still expanding our use of Linux video production internally in the studio with OBS and and sending video signals in between different rigs in the studio using OBS. Like all of that and all of our contributions there are all continuing forward while we just with Linux Action Show. You know, I'm able to sit here on a Friday afternoon right now right. and just really have the most fun I've ever had doing this show for weeks. Like, it is just a blast to sit here and try something new and not really worry about what the camera is looking at, but, you know, pull all my monitors and look at my screen, print out my notes, and not worry about my notes being on camera. I'm right. having a blast. Yeah. And I just want to try this for a couple of weeks while we continue to focus on those efforts. While LinuxCon is going to be coming up at the end of this month, and we're still going to be bringing a video camera down there, we're still bringing down our OBS rig down there. Like, we don't know exactly what the scope of work we're going to be doing down there because, ironically, the show that we'll be live for is Linux Unplugged, which is an audio show. But, you know, we're still, we're still focusing on that. It's not stopping. Mm-hmm. And our thought is focus on what Linux is great at. And offline uh, pre-produced production stuff, we've nailed under Linux. Live, you know, show production stuff, mm-hmm. where, where we're at right now, we're there's close. some room for improvement. Yeah, we're, we're really close. close. You know, and the thing is, uh, I, and I hope this comes through. I hope when, uh, since you're listening to this episode and you've gotten to the end, I hope that you can hear the difference between us. I hope that you can, because one thing that the that the people, especially those that are downloading the show, they miss out is the constant frustration, the 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 nonstop. Well, this isn't working, and Jitsi crashed seven times. So then we we got started at three <laughs> all hours the stuff late. that to, we cut out. You had, yeah, right. All that stuff gets cut out. The faux show gets canceled because we run late because things just take so long. And I hope that as you listen to this episode, you go back and you listen and you say, oh, you know what? They do sound more relaxed. That does sound like they're having way more fun. And overall, the content quality is improving. And you know, the other thing is too is our ability to reach places. It, we turned down events this year specifically because it's not practical mm. to go out and do video production there. And that's because it requires, and I'm not exaggerating, Pelican cases, plural, full of stuff to be able to do it properly. Um, and so with this, you went to OSCON and did a, a, a stellar professional job with a something that is no bigger than a pack of cigarettes in your pocket um, and a pair of headphones. And we and, and mm-hmm. that's only possible if we're if we're focusing on on yeah, audio. There so, was a there was a uh, I think we could say what event. It, I don't think. It, do you think it's a big deal if we say what event it is? No. We had to cancel because of the video stuff. No, I don't think it's a big deal. I'm because we really wanted to go. It was Flock for the Fedora conference. Mm-hmm. The Flock organizers wanted Noah and I to go there and attend Flock, and we really wanted to go there. But I mean, it would have been a thousand dollars out of pocket for us to ship the equipment there to begin with, mm-hmm. not to mention the time window to make it possible and the editing window and all of that. We just couldn't do it. And of course, we hadn't really thought about this new format. It was just one of the things that contributed to our decision chain mm-hmm. to get here was this is a continual problem that we keep running into. Mm-hmm. What can we do? And and so now here we are. And uh, and that, that was, you know, it was kind of a bummer because it meant it was something we couldn't attend. And it was. You know, it's it's nice to be invited to those things. It's nice to have the show invited and for them to try to go out of their way to make it work for us was really nice. And so, you know, next year we hope we can make it. Right. But this year it didn't and you work know out. What? I will. I'll leave it at this, too, is that oftentimes I go into places and people tell me something can't be done on Linux. And my and my answer is that person is usually getting the way of getting it done. And then I show them how it can be done. So if we're wrong, write in and tell us. We would love to know if there is a way to do remote conf- video conferencing well done so we need to be able to specify things like the video bit rate and the audio codec used and the video codec and if you can find the resolution the resolution and the aspect ratio as weird as that is to say in 2015 that i would that i would need to explain that we need to be able to specify that 
If there is a way to do that and we're not seeing it, by all means, let us know. But so far, I feel like we've tried them all and it just isn't quite working. We're very close. And mm-hmm. I think that, like I said, if if a couple things change, if either one of us had like a week to devote to time to fixing the problem or if we had a couple thousand dollars to throw at it, I think either of those things we'd probably be able to scrape by. But just right, right. now with the budget we have and the time we have, it just isn't happening. And frankly, I just want to make two comments, though. Two comments about that. One is... That doesn't totally solve the entire problem because then we're going back to focusing on the visual production aspect right. instead of actually focusing on the content. And like when it came to the Windows 10 review, two days were spent yep. just on the visual presentation mm-hmm. of it just to have YouTube pull it down uh, several hours later. Mm-hmm. Two days lost working on the visual presentation. Three laptops formatted to make that possible just to have YouTube pull it down hours later. Right. So even if we were able to solve the, the, the you know, have this, right. this amazing HD remote video yep. with with incredible back and forth latency. That's 30 uh, percent of even, it. Yeah. Then we still so, so we still haven't solved the content issue. And 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 to be honest with you, we still haven't solved the fact that there is something about the audio only format that is more personable. Mm-hmm. It is more comfortable. It is more relaxed, not more just for you do. and I. Yeah. It's more fun. And also it can be more it can be more powered by hardware specifically and Linux. Mm-hmm. So that's like three or four more things. But you and you you notice this, too, because you were right there with me at OSCON. People that we interview are 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 just are way more noticeably comfortable. Oh, yeah. Like when you do an audio interview with people, they make jokes. They kind of maybe even tell you something they maybe aren't even supposed to say. But when you show up with a camera, you know, you have the process of setting up the camera and getting the tripod and having people clear yep. out in front of you. And, and yep. then you walk around the booth to them yep. and you stand next to them and you, you know, everybody has to adjust their stuff. Yeah. And the red they light think comes about, oh, geez. And, yeah, and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure if maybe you want to talk to me. You might want to talk to our developer yep. because he's really the one that knows this stuff. Yep. You're like, no, I want to talk to you. You're the one that can speak clearly. I want to speak to you. And, <laughs> and like, they get nervous and stuff, right? But you, this is true, right? It happens every time, no, doesn't yeah. it? No, no every single time, right? right? I just, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But when no, you walk not, up, when you walk up with a, when you walk up with something the size of a cigarette pack, and it's a little recorder, and you just say, "Hey, I'm Chris from Jupiter Broadcasting, and would you mind talking on mic about uh, uh, about the Matrix here?" And they just start talking to you. And it's not a big deal. And I, you know, it's, I'm looking them in the eye. They're looking me in the eye and we're having a conversation. I'm just holding a recorder around my ch- around, like chest level. And we get, we get a much more intimate interview and it has nothing to do with the, you know, how hard video is on Linux or remote video conferencing solutions or open source codecs or patent encumbered this or that. It's, it is just the practical nature of two people having a very relaxed conversation mm-hmm. versus two people presenting in front of a camera. And you get completely different results. And I think for what we want in the show, that genuine, real human connectivity, yep. and not just like the sales pitch that you get when somebody's talking to you, it. I think I think it works better in our show to get the more genuine stuff. Yeah. And so it's something we just, even if, and again, it's not a permanent switch necessarily. It's we're going to try it for a little while right. and see if you guys think it makes for a better show. I can tell you, I mean, it doesn't matter what I think because uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not on the receiving end of it, but... I can tell you that just at the end of the show, just everything feel more more relaxed. We've gone on for two hours and 23 minutes, and I feel like I could go on for another two hours if we had to, no problem. Mm-hmm. And that would not be the and case last, if we had video going. Last but not least, it could potentially make community con- the barrier to community contributions to this show a lot lower. Because there's more and more podcasters out there, like our friends Popey and Wimpy, that have really great setups. That they could now record audio contributions that we could play in the show that before we wouldn't have been able to accept oh, because what would we have matched visually right. for that? What could we have displayed while we were just playing an audio clip? Yeah. Nothing. 
right? So we have a whole new uh, uh, range of potential contributions now. And this is something we could really experiment with. It's extremely exciting. And it could be a great way for us to maybe get some outside perspectives on things, too. So it's something I'm, you know, I'm also really excited to play with. Now, we've got to keep going. We've got to keep moving. Okay. So do you want to read Magic yeah, Man's Magic Man uh, email here? He says, going video, quote unquote, enhanced. As beautiful as your face is, and I think he's talking to you, not looking at it anymore. You are no longer, uh, no longer entangled in a net of filthy, unethical software, which would cause much happiness. Really, if it was unplugged where you could, you can read the chat room and maybe some in- images of the stuff you're talking about without the live video of you or Noah. Great job. Keep it up. Purge all the proprietary garbage with fire from your life to find peace of mind. And the reality is, uh, we like, uh, you know, we've, we beat the bush to death now, but yes, we can do that on Linux. So that's great. Um, yeah, that's true, right? So the last piece of feedback, uh, I don't know if you want to take it or if you want me to. Yeah, I know. I'll take it. I'll take it. Now, this one is uh, about DVR software from Johnny K. He said, you asked if there's any software for Linux or DVRs. Well, I haven't worked in security. I've worked in the security industry since college. And back then it was all hardware driven. Anyway, I came across a quick search that turned up this stuff. I never used it before, but of course there's Zone Miner, which we've covered on the show before. And here's another. BlueCherryDVR.com. Mmm. Now that's a new one. Anyway, I found out there's an actual DVRs running Linux. I love the show. Please keep it up and good work, guys. I would rather not see a review that uh, of the OS that shall not be named. Oh, <laughs> I really don't see a need for that OS. Ha! Anyways, he goes and says, sorry for the sarcasm, but when a company takes more pride in their background than their security features, it makes you wonder if they're selling an OS or poorly built graphic systems. That's why that was my point about the background, and he said it way better than I did during our Windows 10 review. Thank you, Johnny K. Very much. Now, there is a thread over uh, in the Linux Action Show subreddit about some crazy last ideas. And I can't read the whole thing, but Sam was pretty passionate about it. And Sam says, uh, you know, uh, maybe instead of uh, giving up on video, maybe you work to get video working under Linux. Well, actually, that's exactly what we're going to do. And if you have any thoughts on that, you guys are welcome to uh, con- contribute over at the Linux Action Show subreddit. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. That's a great place for stories, links. App picks runs Linux. It's the August uh, time period. August and September are are murder, murder for news because a lot of open source developers and good for them are taking some time off. You know, they go on vacation or whatever. And it, it I tell you, we've been doing this show now nearly for this. We are uh, on June 10th. It will be the 10th year of the Linux Action Show. And that's one of the reasons we're trying this experiment right now is we want to try this out before we hit our 10 year mark. And we just kind of want to see if, you know, we, we wanted to go another 10 years. And so we want to make sure that we are legitimately being genuine to ourselves and doing this show in a sustainable way for us. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this experiment. And, uh, you know, I think it's, I hope, yeah, I would like, I would love to get your feedback. So linuxactionshow.reddit.com. And I can tell you, after nine, nine, ten years of doing this show, August is murder for the, month, uh, for the news flow. And and so we could really use your contributions, your votes, your comments, linuxactionshow.reddit.com, your feedback for the format change, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. But I do ask you to keep an open mind. It is something that is evolving. It'll continue to change and be tweaked for the next couple of weeks. We are doing the show live on Friday for a little while. Uh, we don't know if it's going to work for Noah's work schedule, uh, but we're trying this crazy concept after all these years of maybe having a weekend, <laughs> two days. <laughs> Yeah, two days, two Saturday ends because he practically see. Here's what happens for all of you behind a little behind the curtain here. If you do a Sunday morning uh, Sunday morning show, what that really ends up happening because you know you're dedicated to your job and you don't want to go on air unprepared is you end up spending Friday evening and Saturday evening and chunks Thursday of evening. 
Yes, yes. Not and Tuesday of course, and Wednesday yes. filming pre sessions before we start and, doing show notes and, on Thursday. And of course, yeah, you and I coordinating what are we going to do this yeah. week? What are we going to do this week? Like, so we're having that call or that chat session earlier in the week. And then, and then, and then working. And so it, what ends up happening is to do a show on Sunday. Essentially, your entire weekend is spent either thinking about the show or working on the show. And even if you're doing something with the family or you're working on something, uh, something, another job thing, you're still thinking about the fact that Sunday morning you have a show coming up. And, you know, in the back of your mind, it sounds, it sounds crazy, but in the back of your mind, there's like this countdown, you know, that like the, like the, like the Jack Bauer style kind of countdown in the background, you know, you in certain amount of hours, you're going to go live. And so you always think about it. And it means you never get a weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we talked about moving the show to Friday, I, my first thought was, oh man, I know there are people that have their routines built around the Sunday live show. We got an email into the show about a gentleman who, uh, his wife cooks email (laughs) based around this, when we go live (laughs) in the segments and stuff. Yeah. She, they schedule their lunch around last. Oh, was it lunch? Yeah. I thought it was dinner. Yeah. D- yeah. Whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, so what, what yeah. He comes in with the email. And he says, yeah, I thought it was dinner. But yeah, it's just like the whole routine is based around, you know, the Sunday live show. And I really respect, appreciate that. And, 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 you know, I also have routines like that and I totally understand it. But I have to tell you the idea of even for just a few weeks of having a weekend, it is very, very exciting. And it's just something I want to try for a little while Just have two days off. And just see how that feels without ever having to work on a show or anything or even prep for a show for two days, which I've never done in like 10 years. I'm a little concerned about um, you. I, I know. I might, I'm, I'm up inside of a padded room like, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm going to go crazy. I'm, I know. I'm, I've got to go nuts, man. I'm going to come back on Monday and be like, guys, I got an idea for like 10 new shows. Here's, here's what's going to happen. Here's, <laughs> I, I guarantee you this is going to happen. When this, everyone mark my words. And then when this comes through, you can say no as a prophet. Okay. You're going to wake up on Sunday morning and freak the F out. I am. You're going to be like, I, I have to be on air. I've actually, I've already, I've already talked to Angela about this. Yeah. I'm like, um, I am. Uh, and not only that, but I think I'm going to come to the studio and still try to play last in the 10 o'clock time slot. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to be at the studio by myself, but not doing a show at 10 o'clock. Like that is going to feel extremely, extremely weird. I'm not going to get out of I'm bed, not- but I'll roll over and telegram you. So you feel like there's somebody else there. How about that? <laughs> yeah, no, that'll, that'll be nice. That'll be nice. Uh, so if you'd like to give us some feedback in person or just come say hi or just uh, maybe uh, shake hands with Linus Torvalds, come to LinuxCon. We're going to be there on the 17th and 18th of August this month. We're going to have a meetup soon at meetup.com slash Broadcasting. You can join our group there and then you'll get notified when we create the meetup group. Something kind of cool. They're doing an open source t-shirt contest and they're going to be judging the best like retro open source t-shirt and original open source t-shirt. And uh, Angela is going to be on the panel. So uh, you should, uh, you know, I'm just saying. Maybe I'll have an in with the judge. Maybe she'll wear an awesome shirt. And uh, we'll have more information about that. You can also catch this week's faux show where we talk about that. Did you hear about that, that she's going to be on the panel? I did. She sent me a tele- telegram. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, and Noah's going to be in town. And if all goes as planned, we'll be doing Linux Unplugged uh, the Tuesday. Uh, so that'll be the 18th of August down there in Seattle. So I'm really excited to have it here in Seattle. And I'm also pr- just kind of early planning to go to PAX um, on Monday. So uh, there's a uh, PAX Prime is coming on. I think that's August 31st. And uh, I might, if you're going to be at PAX Prime on August 31st and want to say hi to me, I'll be down there uh, in Seattle on August 31st at uh, PAX. And I'm going to be looking for uh, the, the open source games and Linux games and, and people that are targeting uh, SteamOS and things like that at uh, PAX Prime on August 31st. I'd like for you guys to come say hi. And Noah, where can people find you throughout the week? You know, I was thinking about this. At some point, I'm going to have to start a blog or something like that. So I have something more pertinent to send people to because Ultaspeed, we're great inside of the Grand Forks community. In fact, 
uh, we actually so there's a big push um, and it's been a huge threat to to us as local IT providers. There are these national companies that have come in and tried to run us out and they offer ridiculously cheap rates, but they don't actually do any support. They just they mail all the stuff overnight and then they give you written instructions on how to plug all this stuff in. Well, it came crashing down like a like a pile of bad bricks on Tuesday. And uh, we had this hotel. They had just built it. First, first full full week that they're there, they have eighty occupants and no network connectivity. Can't check anyone oh, in the front boy. desk. Can't get anyone oh, again. So the general manager uh, calls me and she's like, "You guys are kind of the name in 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 the city for doing uh for doing hospitality. Would you would you come take a look?" So I come over there and they said, "Yeah, listen, everything in here, we want it all gone. Uh, put in your equipment, do whatever you have to do, but get us up now." Uh, and so, yeah, the national support company just totally flopped. And it, it's great because this has been the first real example now that I can point out to other clients and say, listen, this is why you don't want to do the fly by night, nine ninety nine a month installer. Instead, pay a real professional to be here because when something nice, happens, man. we're going to nice. be here. And, and yeah, we were able to get them up and running in just under six hours. So they were pretty happy. And, you uh, know, uh, that is that is legitimate. You know, the hands on thing is, is, is awesome, although I still think it'd be great if you did some remote support for some hotels out here oh, yeah. in the Pacific yeah, Northwest. I, you, know, you know, my first you know what I'm going to do? I think I told you about this. I'm going to offer one heck of a deal to that uh, to that. Particular, yeah, the one you stay yeah, at. Yeah. Yeah. And because yeah. their guest Wi-Fi is god awful. And I would do it at cost just so that I would have good Wi-Fi when I'm there. <laughs> Dude, you know, you should mention your, your Twitter handle. That's oh, yeah. really where at, people could check you out. Linux. Yeah, I, I've been trying to get better. About, I Actually, I don't have Facebook on the phone anymore. So the only way to I get push notifications with Twitter. So tweet at me. At Chris LAS, that's me. And Noah, I might eventually be tweeting about something I have in my hand right here. Oh, yeah. It's a little teaser. My ADD, I forgot I'm, about it. What is it? Can you, get, can you guess what this is? So I'm going to drop it on the table. Okay, so right. here's I'm shaking it right, right now. Shake it. And I'm going to drop it. Theater of the mind, all Noah. Right. It's a bit of swag we're going to be giving out at LinuxCon. That's your hint. And all I'm right. going to drop it on the table. See if you can identify okay, it. All right. It sounds like a paper butterfly with a Linux pin strapped to the front of a monkey. How close am I? <laughs> well, you're close in the sense of Linux and something else. But I'm going to have to wait. I don't know if I, I have to get permission from our swag master okay. before uh, I reveal it. But right. she's uh, she's put something together. Let's just say the Linux Action Show logo was designed with certain things in mind. And this is one of them. And this is going to be one of the ultimate swag items we're going to give away. It would look amazing on a laptop bag, a backpack, a shirt, anything like that. And it's going to be a swag item at LinuxCon. And then we just got a batch of them. And they're really awesome. So uh, I, I can't wait to tell you guys about it. And uh, also... Um, you know, Blaster and crew are working on some secret plans for Ohio Linux Fest. So if you're going to be at Ohio Linux Fest, there could be some crew down there in the future, too. That's coming up down the road. But uh, stay tuned for more information about that. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com is where you go to contribute to the show. If there was a story we didn't cover, you can submit it there and vote on it or give your comments or insights if you think we got something wrong. Go to JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact to send us feedback. And JBLive.tv is where we do it live. You can go to JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar, and then you'll get that in your local time zone to find out if we're doing the show on a Friday or a Sunday or anything like that. Close. You know, we also do a bunch of other shows, including shows about BSD, system administration, development, community, and daily tech news over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. See you right back here next week.
check out my uh, my ambiance I got going here. I got a lamp over here. Oh, look at you! I got the lights off. How's it's zen? nice. How's that? Yeah. yeah, I bet it's, it's a, lot a little warm, too. but it's, it, oh, really? yeah, it's, it's not it's it's not as bad. I just gonna, but it's not as bad. It's still a little warm, but it's not as bad. I tell you what, I uh, I can already tell as far as I'm pumped about the like the not not just the audio quality of the show, but I think the content quality is about to significantly go up because I'm noticing a couple of things. Now that I oh, don't yeah, have that? I don't have to be cognizant of the camera because there isn't a camera. So now yeah. I can be paying attention to the show notes. I can be paying attention to the chat room and we can continue to have a dialogue at the, you know, at the appropriate time. And there isn't that added pressure of I have to be staring at the camera, wasting time while Chris is doing his intro. It's actually really nice. Uh, so, you know, you sound significantly better today. Well, gee, uh, thank you, because I spent literally six hours yesterday setting this whole whole rigamadig up. You know, I, you know, it wasn't that I was I was absent to good audio quality when we were on video, but the focus was on on the video and making it practical so that I could do everything from sitting at the kiosk with the the thing. Mm. And all those barriers have been broken down now. So now it's just what do I need to do to sound the best? Well, that's put soundproofing up because nobody can see it. So it doesn't yeah. matter. Well, I need I want a really nice big microphone boom because it doesn't matter if it's in camera. That doesn't matter anymore. What color does a microphone have to be? Oh, that doesn't matter because it's not on camera anymore. Um, and then I can have the mixer right next to me. Right. I can be making adjustments on the yep. fly. I have a compressor. I, yeah, just yep. ugh, love it. Yeah, I have I have all of the monitors pulled in, mm-hmm. so I, they're all closer, so I can read the screens easier, which is the first thing that was really nice, mm-hmm. is I didn't have to worry about where the screens were at in relation to the camera. But you know what was really funny is I came in here at 2 o'clock, mm-hmm. and I started setting up, and at about 2.10, I realized... Well, shit, I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like I don't have to turn the lights on. So there's a whole sequence of events, like because uh, studio lights take about 15 minutes mm-hmm. or 20 minutes to get to their maximum, like actual brightness. Right. You know, it, it, you know, really, it's probably not that long, but that's how long I give them. Which you have to do <clears> before <throat> you can even begin to adjust, much less complete. Right. So I, before I even b- bother turning on the camera and setting the exposure, the lights have to be running for 20 minutes, right? Uh-huh. And then I, ha- I reboot to get all the HDMI interfaces activated. So I have to restart the machine. I have to interrupt the stream, right? And then I. Uh, and then I have to set the camera either, because it was probably just for a two-person show, because we just recorded the faux show. Yep. So then I reset the camera to a one-person show, reset the focus, reset the exposure, reset the brightness of the lights, lock in the hues lights, set the focus. Lock in the hues Then get the... Then, yeah, and then get... Then, and then and then I like... So that's like, you know, 25, 30 minutes of work. Yeah. Well, I, would sh- I, I can just, shave 10 minutes off of that, and that is... Stop screwing with the Hughes lights. They they look just fine. Doesn't matter if your skin no, has. Listen, my skin they don't does take not any have time. that. It, my skin does not have. They that don't beautiful take any time. It's about glow. the green screen. It's about the green my, screen. The, it is about the, the green screen has a black, a, a blue background. Like, so my skin I, should have a blue tint to it. Go ahead. I'm recording this. Yeah. No, I'm recording Me too, this locally, for the future. In high def, baby. Your S your SOB face over there is going to go buy Hue lights eventually, <laughs> and I'm going to play this back as a clip. So uh, your face. We'll see. That's the internet of things. Although I did look at an S the other day. I ended up so I ended up, I ended up reloading. I get the last profile started, and then I realized, well, I don't have to turn on the lights or even the camera. I'm done. And so then I was like, then I was like, well, I'll go get a visualizer so I can display the vis- so I have a visualizer for the live stream. I'll go load up some old time radio, and then I'll go assemble a freaking lamp. I actually assembled a lamp because I had extra time. <laughs> like I I put it together. I put together a lamp, Noah, because I didn't have to set up the video stream, and now I have a nice effing lamp in you here. Want, like it is a t- uh, it, it's, it's so nuts. I, I want to share with you uh, what I'm excited about for doing audio, and unfortunately, it's neither as inexpensive as a lamp nor is it as uh, how shall I say politely, uh, you know, zen. We'll say zen. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. But I sent you a link in production chat. But uh, I, mm. I want to buy one of these because I, from everyone I've talked to, if I if I throw down and and and, and pick up a, uh, one of these, oh you will, yes, you will not be able to tell the difference if I'm on my laptop in an airport. Or here Let's in the go studio. have these on this. Huh? Let's go have these on this because I could probably. This is maybe what I could use on the road Heck, trip. Yeah. No, we should totally do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's and they only have five left in stock, and this is exactly what I've been thinking about yeah. too. No, these 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 are like the the creme de la creme. If you, apparently, if you go look, and I haven't done it myself, but I was. Yeah, these are like what the sports broadcasters yep. yeah, yeah. use and stuff. Yeah. Well, a lot of those guys are are telex ones too, but but I guess this is the most popular for for broadcast. And the guy was telling me he's like. If you buy, I'm like, you know, the thing is, I bought a broadcasting headset and it was, I thought it was great until you and I sat down at Linux Fest Northwest and then you had the RE20 and I put my headset on. I'm like, and we both looked at each other and we're like, no, no, that's not going to fly. Uh, and he goes, you won't, yeah. he goes, you won't, he goes, you sit right next to an RE20, put this on and you will be blown away. He's like blown away. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to throw down, I'm going to pick some up. So, uh, well, if you grab those, I'll send you. Let me know. I'll PayPal you half of the the cast for that. All right, because I'd like to try them too. Maybe I'll I'll use them for the road trip. So I guess you had quite a face uh, when I mentioned that I used uh, Angela's PC for uh, the Windows 10 review. Yeah. Which, by the way, is all is, is, is I, I put her drive back in. She's all back. To, she's good. She's fine. Yeah. No. I, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I just I got concerned that 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 was the end of of. of here's the thing. You of all people should understand that face. That face was that face was we spent how many sleepless nights to get that? We went yeah. through how much heartache to decide if we could afford well, really we knew from the beginning that we couldn't afford to do it, but we were just banking on the fact that the, her her old laptop would sell and that was how much stress and you wiped right. it away oh, man. to put Windows 10 on it. That, that that's well, what that face encompasses. What is that what is what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Um, that you've gone psychotic and you need to seek professional help. That I will do anything for the show. Oh, oh, yes, yes, that right, that that's what that's actually what I was going to say. It just it left my w- mouth differently. Meanwhile, seven people got to watch it on YouTube before it got blocked yeah. by YouTube. Cock block. So, and I sp- I filed a dispute that ni- that Sunday night, and they have never released the video. And now there are dozens of other videos on YouTube called Windows Ten versus Linux. So that's awesome. Yeah.